This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. At all. I, I mean, and nothing against the guy, but I don't understand his appeal. I, I don't. And the guy keeps just getting incredible opportunity after incredible opportunity. I mean, maybe Rupert Murdoch just likes him and he keeps giving him all these great opportunities in two different countries, in both the UK, UK and the United States. I remember when he was hired to replace a legend at CNN and my review of his show was, eh, it was okay. It totally depended on who the guest was. And I, 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 he got fired from that show. He goes over and does this British breakfast show where I think he's doing incredibly mediocre work. I find his columns to be pretty mediocre, me, mediocrely written. And then he gets job after job on Fox in this country and gets excerpted in the New York Post. Now, maybe it's a good thing. I mean, I'm lucky enough to call the billionaire owner of our radio network a friend, so maybe I shouldn't be uh, I'm criticizing. I'm not even really criticizing. I'm just sort of questioning out loud. Maybe I shouldn't be questioning people that uh, are able to get jobs based on having one fan that happens to be the owner of one of the biggest media conglomerates in the world. But I just don't get it. I, I've never found Piers Morgan... Um, entertaining. I've never found him informative. I've never found him amusing. I've never found him thought-provoking. And again, I don't like to criticize anybody. I know how difficult it is to make a living in this business, and it's not helped when you have the the chattering class making, you know, making critical comments, and I'm not looking to uh, take a cheap shot at him at all. I'm just saying I don't get it. I never have, and I don't know that I ever will. Now, on to the business at hand. This is Frank Morano, and I appreciate you listening. Hopefully you had a nice weekend. I really uh, am concerned about America's financial system and America's banking system. Recently, when uh, Silicon Valley Bank failed and then regulators shut down a second bank, Signature Bank, people started asking the question, could this be a situation like 2008 or worse? where we see a lot of these banks falling like dominoes and we see a real problematic situation, a contagion in the American financial sector and in the banking system. So what did we do? A couple of things happened. We learned that the FDIC was going to fully insure all the depositors' money, not just what they were required by law to do, up to $250,000. No, they were going to insure every dollar that every business had in those accounts and every dollar that every individual had in those accounts, even if they had more than $250,000 in one account. I don't understand. Again, maybe I'm in, I'm, I'm just not in the position to have $250,000 in any account, but I, I don't understand why you would keep 
$250,000 in one account or more than that. I don't understand why you would just wouldn't break it up into multiple accounts, even if it's at the same bank. This way you're in compliance with what the FDIC rule is. So um, now the Federal Reserve has raised interest rates again, again. And people smarter than me are predicting this could lead to more bank failures. So the question becomes, what will be done now? What happens now? And the first question a lot of people are asking is, are the depositors at all of these banks going to get bailed out, just like the way that the the depositors at SVB and Signature Bank were? And you have to think the answer is yes, because you would think the same rationale would apply to, let's say, and again, XYZ Bank, Acme Bank, if that bank goes under, you would think those depositors would be subjected to the same litmus test that in the same decision-making process that the last two banks depositors were subject to. If not, why not? So a couple of things are happening here. Some are saying, look, now that this is happening, why don't we just do away or at least raise that $250,000 limit? Because it used to be, remember what it used to be? It used to be $100,000 that was backed by the FDC, that was fully insured by the FDC. And it was, I think, 2009, 2010 that they upped that to $250,000. Some people are saying, let's just back everything. Let's back everything or let's at least raise it to something more substantial, maybe half a million dollars, maybe a million dollars. So is $250,000 a lot of money? I certainly think so. But uh, the FDIC only insures deposits up to that mark, which has not moved in over a decade. But now, following the implosion of SVB and Signature, some lawmakers are questioning whether it's time to raise that limit again or even make all deposits insurable. Meanwhile, others caution that any change could lead to even riskier behavior from banks. And that's the first question about this whole banking mess that I'd love your opinion on. Do you think it's time to raise the FDC, the FDIC limit to a half million dollars, a million dollars? What's the magic number? What should it be and why? Or is it time to do away with that limit entirely? So SVB and Signature, they specialized in corporate clients with most account balances exceeding $250,000. So regulators threw the cap out the window to protect the depositors. Authorities said they made customers whole so that those customers could pay their employees and avoid falling behind on their bills. And I read you a letter from a guy who had a business account at SVB, and he was he was affected by this. The aim was to reassure clients of all U.S. banks that there was no need to empty their accounts and ultimately cause bank runs. And so far, this tactic has has worked. It's largely calmed investors across the banking system, and no other banks have joined SVB and Signature in the shutdown by regulator club. Not yet, anyway. They were afraid if they said, nope, we will honor our FDIC obligation. They're afraid what would happen is the next day, everyone that has $250,000 or more in one account would pull that money out of that account, causing a run on the bank and causing just pandemonium and chaos. And that is sort of the case for raising the cap. 
a group of mid-sized banks wrote to regulators last weekend asking them to expand FDIC coverage to cover deposits in full for two years. They say that temporarily abolishing the limit would restore confidence in smaller banks. Well, first of all, I'm not sure I agree with that because what would what, what does it say about a smaller bank that, hey, uh, if they lose all your money, we'll still make sure that you get it back. That's not exactly a vote of confidence in the smaller banks. But um, meanwhile, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer suggested the government temporarily impose a full guarantee only for corporate clients uh, to safeguard businesses and prevent them from ditching smaller banks for larger ones. I could see uh, kind of the rationale behind that. So far-reaching measures like system-wide guarantees or long-term changes to deposit insurance would require congressional approval. And Congress uh, has started considering both of those options last week. Progressive Senator Elizabeth Warren called permanently raising the FDIC cap a good move, saying it would help protect small businesses and nonprofits with cash stashed in wobbly banks. And the million-dollar question for Warren is what should this new insurance cutoff be? Is it $2 million? Is it $5 million? Is it $10 million? Conservative Senator Mike Rounds said it's worth examining whether inflation may have rendered the current limit too low. I think that's a conversation worth having. I could see it maybe going up to half million dollars because when they set that, and again, I think it was 2008, 2009, when they set that $250,000 limit, $250,000 today is not what it was back in 2009. It's not. There, we've seen significant inflation, so why shouldn't the FDIC limit bump up a little bit to keep up with that? Now, the critics of doing this say that raising the insurance limit forces the FDIC and ultimately all the banks that pay into that to deal with the fallout from just a few banks making risky choices. The Wall Street Journal editorial board argued that without the risk of a depositor panic, banks would have nothing to stop them from being reckless with the customer's cash. They also claim that expanding deposit insurance would make businesses less vigilant about choosing a bank with sound risk management. I kind of think the journal is right on both of those because if you're a business and you have $5 million in your in your regular rotating account that you use to pay people and everything else, why why would it matter what bank you pick? You pick the bank that your uh, that your friend runs. You pick the bank that your fr- your cousin works at, so he gets the uh, bonus commission on your account. You pick a bank that's the closest to your office instead of doing your due diligence as a bank to pick uh, as a as a business to pick a well run bank. Additionally, if you're a bank and you're thinking, "Oh my, I got millions of dollars of depositors' money here, and if I blow it all at the blackjack table, it's figurative." But if I blow it all at the blackjack table or the craps table, the FDIC is still going to pay back our depositors? Well, I'm going to take some risky bets in the hopes that it pays off big time. And if it doesn't, shoulder shrug, the depositors still get their money back anyway. Republican Senator Cynthia Loomis of Wyoming said she's unwilling to vote for insuring all deposits as it could make smaller banks in her state which have a majority of insured depositors, pay higher dues to the FDIC insurance fund. And the, uh, the, the conservative House Freedom Caucus agrees. They recently vowed to oppose any attempt to pass expanded deposit coverage. It's unclear 
whether higher deposit guarantees will become enshrined in law anytime soon. In the meantime, regulators have said they'll backstop more deposits in an emergency, continuing their efforts to prevent bank panics from convincing folks that they'll be safe in a bank in a bank panic. Where do you come down on that? I don't think an no limit is a good idea, but I could see raising the limit to half a million dollars, $750,000. It strikes me as a reasonable approach given what we've seen with inflation. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Here was uh, Janet Yellen a week ago on what future bailouts may look like. A bank only gets that treatment if a majority of the FDIC board, a supermajority, a supermajority of the Fed board, and I, in consultation with the president, determine that the failure to protect uninsured depositors would create systemic risk and significant economic and financial consequences. You know, again, I don't like to criticize anyone for the way they speak, but I'll say this again. I've said this before. You want to talk about restoring confidence in the regulators and in the financial markets. Janet Yellen sounds, and look, you can't help the way that you sound. Some people say I sound too nasally. Some people say I sound uh, X or sound Y. Some people say my voice raises at weird times. Can't help the way that you sound, really. And um, I'm not criticizing Janet Yellen the way for the way that she sounds, but I mean – she just sounds so nervous all the time. She just sounds so timid. Oh, oh I'm, I'm afraid of the banks. I'm afraid of the banks. Okay. Now, we know who lost money. That's the shareholders of these banks. Who made money with these banks that fell? Be- because there's always somebody, where there's a yin, there's always a yang. There's always somebody that makes money, especially when we talk about uh, fire, finance, insurance, real estate. And former Silicon Valley Bank CEO Greg Becker sold $3.6 million worth of shares on February 27th, just days before the bank disclosed a large loss that triggered its stock slide and collapse. I want you to, again, this guy got $3.6 million cash selling his own bank's shares days before all the other shareholders got screwed. Over the previous two years, Becker sold nearly $30 million worth of stock. So he is doing just fine. Becker won't rake in the most from this mess. Jamie Dimon, chair and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the biggest Wall Street bank, will likely make much, much more. That's because depositors in small and medium-sized bank are banks, they're now fleeing to the safety of J.P. Morgan and other giant banks that have been deemed too big to fail because the government bailed them out back in 2008. Um, Not last Friday afternoon, but the previous Friday, the Deputy Treasury Secretary met with Jamie Dimon at his office in New York. He asked Dimon whether the failure of Silicon Valley could spread to other banks. Dimon said there's a potential. Presumably, Diamond knew such contagion would mean a lot more business for J.P. Morgan. In a note to clients last Monday, bank analyst Mike Mayo wrote that J.P. Morgan is particular in, in particular is battle-tested in volatile markets and epitomizes how the largest U.S. banks have shed risk 
since that 2008 financial crisis. Recall that the 2008 financial crisis generated a gigantic shift of assets to the biggest Wall Street banks, with the result that J.P. Morgan and the other giant banks became even bigger. In the early 90s, the five largest banks had only about 12% of U.S. deposits. After the crisis, they accounted for nearly half. And after, after last week, they're going to be even bigger. Their giant size has already given them a huge but hidden federal subsidy, which is estimated to be about $83 billion annually, a premium that investors and depositors willingly pay to these enormous banks in the form of higher fees and lower returns because they're too big to fail. But let's talk about this fellow. Um, well, so my, my beef is this. Jamie Dimon was at the helm in 2008 when J.P. Morgan received $25 billion from the federal government, from the taxpayers, to help stem the financial crisis, which had been brought on largely by these big banks. They largely caused this. They were careless and they were fraudulent in their lending. J.P. Morgan Chase among them and the other big banks. And Dimon earned that year $20 million. And in March of 2009, Obama summoned all these big bank CEOs to the White House and warned them that their administration is the only thing between him and the pitchforks. And he was right. But Obama never really publicly rebuked Jamie Dimon or the other big bankers. When asked about the generous pay that Jamie Dimon and these other Wall Street CEOs continue to rake in, Obama defended them. As very savvy businessmen. Well, how savvy do you have to be to cause the world financial crisis? So what free market system is this? Taxpayers had just bailed out the banks and the bank CEOs were still raking in fat paychecks. Yet, back in 2008, 8.7 million Americans lost their jobs, causing the unemployment rate to soar. Total U.S. household net worth dropped $11 trillion. Housing prices dropped by a third. And rather than defend those CEO paychecks, Obama might have demanded, as a condition of getting bailed out, that the banks help underwater homeowners or help the very people that were having a hard time. So, to paraphrase Robert Redford in The Candidate, what do we do now? What do we do now? We have a lot of people at Signature Bank that have gotten rich over this. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. They sold their stock in a company that I believe they knew was doomed to fail, and the rest of their shareholders got screwed. Well, President Biden, last week, called on Congress to strengthen laws to hold bankers accountable for misconduct, including methods to claw back these bonuses. Hours before Silicon Valley Bank closed, senior managers paid themselves millions of dollars in bonuses. And I have to tell you, I think Biden is right to seek, uh, you know, some sort of money from these reckless managers at Silicon Valley Bank. 
Congress, I think, should listen, not only to bring accountability for those who caused this financial disaster, but to help deter it in the future. You have to wonder if other bank heads see the head of Signature or the head of SVB have to pay back some of their bonus money, at least the the money that they made right before their bank failed. You have to think they'll be a little less likely to make riskier bets. Congress should require banks to hold a significant portion of senior banker pay in escrow. And if the bank goes bust, that pot should be used to pay the uninsured depositors. This way, it's not the taxpayers bailing them out. It's the bankers that screwed them in the first place. This would keep all managers at the bank on alert for problems. And uh, I believe David Rosen from um, Public Citizen, or maybe it was Lisa Gilbert of Public Citizen, somebody from Public Citizen said their own pay would be in jeopardy and they'd be a lot more likely to be careful. And I asked Brian Kilmeade about this on Thursday when he was here, when we were talking about the uh, this this oh, this uh, proposal by Biden to claw back some of the bonus money. And this is what Kilmeade said. I just want to see a criteria for it because mm-hmm. I don't like that Elizabeth Warren can go in there and have our anti-capitalistic principles uh, put into play. Just tell me, you know, if you lose a certain amount of money in a certain amount of time, that bonus needs to be put in as some type of escrow account. For example, these guys live high lives. Let's say they live in a $5 million mansion and they have all these uh, these extra, all of a sudden the money just stops or whatever. I just think just just don't give me a temper tantrum. Give me a program. Mm. So I know, like what we just said, uh, you know, just tell me what it is. You know, these these bonuses will only be paid at the end of the year and they got to be kept in a separate account for eight months. Uh, So I just don't I I don't want people just trying to get votes out of this and then fundraising off it. But I, I do not think you deserve a bonus if you tank your bank. The thing I find most fascinating in looking at life, I don't want to call it politics because it's it's so much more than that, are the areas where the folks on the far left and the folks on the far right can agree. And I'm wondering if this is one. Uh, I agree with this proposal to claw back some of this money from these bankers and to do as Public Citizen has proposed on the left. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know if they could sit on the left. They're kind of a good government group, but uh, I think they're generally considered on the left. And Brian Kilmeade, who's absolutely considered on the right, as they've suggested, keep this banker pay in escrow. And if something goes wrong, pay the uninsured depositors from there. So I'd love to hear your comments on on this, either the proposal to raise the FDIC insurance limit or uh, the proposal to claw back some of this money from the banks. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We're going to talk with the legend himself, the greatest weatherman of all time, Lloyd Lindsay Young, in just a few minutes. I love talking to Lloyd Lindsay Young. I hate that it so often involves deadly weather patterns, but we're going to talk to him anyway because I'll look for any excuse to talk with Lloyd Lindsay Young. But I want to take your calls first. There's uh, one, two, three, four open lines, 800-848-9222. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Hey, how are you? I'm making a living, Ed. You know, um, the the whole TARP program was just politics, because every bank can go to the Fed discount window and borrow as much as they want. It was just window dressing. And do you know who owns the Fed? Is it a government agency? No, it's not. It's it's private. 
It's private. Well, it's quasi-private. Right. Private. They call it quasi-public. It's absurd. Yeah, it's right. It's yeah. owned by the member banks, right? And Jamie Dimon has a permanent seat as the head of the Fed. Yeah, I, you're exactly right, Ed. Uh, thank you. You know, uh, Dimon had uh, no problem um, basically uh, lobbying publicly against things like uh, free public education. He had no problem lobbying against uh, all sorts of other all sorts of other things like that. He called it socialism. Well, I mean, what's more socialistic than having the public bailed out bail out a giant bank? We've essentially socialized risk and privatized reward. Diamond's making tens of millions of dollars a year. And, you know, where are the suckers? 800-848-9222. Simon's in Brooklyn. Hello. See, I think, frankly, they should raise the FDIC more than 250. I think they should go up to a million and a half to two. First of all, it's going to bring much more money to the banks because people need to get credibility back. Everyone's hiding their money. They're scared to put the money into the bank. So even if it's a big bank, people are just scared. So, and if you want to go higher, they should insure the money. They should get like insurance on any big thing. If you want to put in $10 million, you'll have to pay more insurance or personal insurance or some kind of insurance to make sure that the, the, the money stays. Okay. For a, big, a big amount of money. And um, because now everyone, everyone, the credibility has to come back. And, mm. and about the stock price, like Signature Bank and the other bank, there were hundreds of millions of dollars wiped out, 401ks and dividends. It's, it's incredible that they were puffed for one night. Uh, people who had the uh, bank accounts and Signature had a stock account. And they were told, you know, it's the best bank in the world. And meanwhile, the, 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 the stock price is going to probably open up at $0.10 on the, on the pink sheets probably in another month or so. It's gone. It's like so. It's sad to think about that. Thanks, Simon. I want to try and get in one or two other folks before we get to Lloyd. Uh, Roberts in Suffolk. Hello, Robert. Hi, Frank. Why aren't these bank execs being arrested for federal felonies of insider trading? Well, I, 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 if there's a case to be made and if there is evidence, I'm sure there's plenty of prosecutors, especially in this Justice Department, that would love the publicity that would come with doing a perp walk of uh, one of these banks. So uh, if there's evidence to demonstrate that there was insider trading, you can bet that they'll I think there's a good chance there will be a prosecution. Eddie's in Nassau. Hello, Eddie. Hey, good morning. Uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, look, we've gone through this uh decades of uh, banking irregularities and uh, financial gibberish, none of these guys ever go to jail. None of them have to cough up the bribes and the graft and everything. It's it's always the VIG, isn't it? Well, you know, it is interesting, Eddie. Thank you. And I, I do wonder, I, I, look, just because a bank is reckless, it doesn't mean it's criminal, Right. I think in 2008, it's clear that there was criminal conduct going on, and almost no one went to jail. They found one low-level guy that they sent to jail. But other than that, nobody went to jail. I think that was uh, a travesty. But I'm, I want to talk about – I want to I come up with a plan to ensure good behavior, to essentially avoid moral hazard on the part of these banks' par, uh, part and on the part of businesses. And how to make sure this doesn't become a contagion. What is that? Hey, uh, speaking of a storm, there was a quite literal storm, not in the banking sector, but in Mississippi and Alabama. We're going to talk about it with uh, Lloyd Lindsay Young in just a moment, the greatest weatherman of all time. This is The Other Side of Midnight Straight Ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. There are just really horrible images uh, that we're seeing out of Mississippi and Alabama with the uh, horrible tornadoes and storms in in those places. Here are some uh, residents in central Mississippi talking to uh, CBS about some of the storm damage that they experienced. We lost everything, but we got our life. I've been living here since I married my wife. When I heard that loud crack, but then when it over with, I realized it was that tree. I kind of took my legs and everything into one ball. And I mean, then, the instincts, you just balled yeah, up. I just balled up to try to get into the tightest corner. Well, here to help us break that down and a lot of other weather-related news, which has been significant and weird, depending on where in the country you happen to be, is uh, the world's most famous weatherman, legendary TV and radio weather voice, and the man who said hello to scores, millions of New Yorkers each and every day on TV for many years and uh, has said hello to many Californians on the radio for many, many years, the one and only Lloyd Lindsay Young. Lloyd, it's great to have you back. Frank, thank you so much. Hello, everybody, nationwide. Frank, it's a privilege to be on the other side of midnight. It's been a while, but boy, do I have a lot to tell you about. All right, let's let's discuss the real sad stuff that happened in Mississippi and Alabama. We have atmospheric rivers that are going coast to coast. As a matter of fact, before I get to Mississippi and Alabama, Frank, number 14 is getting ready to batter all of California, the Golden State, where we even had a tornado near Los Angeles. So get that in a minute. But these rivers of air are colliding with warm Gulf moisture, and these rivers are very cold. We even had sub-zero temperatures earlier this month. So when you get cold semi-Arctic air mixing with warm Gulf Stream air, unfortunately, you get severe thunderstorms. And tragically, sometimes they get carried away and become tornadoes. Now, a couple of these tornadoes that hit rural Mississippi were EF4 on the Puhita scale, Puhita scale, which is the worst possible damage you can imagine. If anybody has seen the videos, it looks like a hydrogen bomb has gone mm. off in a couple of these Mississippi towns. Keep in mind, the poverty level, unfortunately, is in Mississippi is the lowest in the United States. And now these poor people literally have lost a couple of their towns. It's been a crazy year, and tragically, there's more to come. I hate to be the forecaster of gloom. God willing, it won't be quite as bad, but there are tornado watches as we speak right now, Frank, in western Georgia. Doppler radar is showing intense thunderstorms east of Birmingham, approaching the Mississippi-Alabama line. So it's really, really deadly stuff. As a matter of fact, I can go all the way back to January that shows you how real climate changes. There were even tornadoes east of Houston, Texas, and all along the Gulf Coast. 
So, Frank, yeah, it's a real tragedy. Uh, probably, as a matter of fact, it's so severe, I think most of the network anchors, David Muir, et cetera, Lester Holt, they're literally going to Mississippi live to report later today, Monday. Mm. So, yeah, Frank, it's a real tragedy. It really is. And this this winter has been unbelievable. Now, I know it's officially spring. So other than the tornado, did you want to ask me specifically well, any more info well, on these horrible tornadoes? And uh, I want to get to a few other things. Well, do we have a, an idea of exactly how deadly these tornadoes were as it stands now? Yes. Well, the death count, uh, tragically, they're saying at least 25. But... Unfortunately, it's going to go up because there are, I think there are at least five to ten more people, hopefully no more than that, buried in the rubble. I mean, they're literally mm. digging these people out. And once again, I mean, this, this particular – these tornadoes in Mississippi are the worst I've seen in many, many years. And uh, do, we, do we have tragic. any – oh, no, absolutely. Uh, do we have any idea – what might have been what might be the cause for this uptick in tornado activity or is just is, it, is this just one of those things that just happens well here's the thing frank the overall winter i know it's officially spring now but i can go all the way back to the 1st of december on new year's eve south of sacramento california on a major interstate two people drove into several feet of water and drowned and the next day people had to be picked up now where i'm going with this the jet stream, which, after all, all of the weather is manufactured in the upper atmosphere, the jet stream has been all messed up since uh, December 1st. And, gosh, I mean, California, for example, in the Sierra Nevada, the, the heaviest snowfall in recorded history going back to the late 1800s, Donner Pass, everybody has heard of that, more than 700 inches of snow this year. More than 800 inches of snow in the southern Sierra. Even Disneyland had snow flurries. Who ever heard of that? And then I mentioned that tornado warning that was issued for Los Angeles. And Now, luckily, there were no serious injuries, but 10 or 11 buildings in Montebello, a suburb of L.A., suffered damage. So, Frank, it all has to do with a very, very intensive jet stream. And even over in Hawaii, several airplanes well, experienced severe turbulence, and there was one going into Honolulu that threw in, flew into a severe thunderstorm and injured 16 people. It was Hawaiian Airlines, 16 people seriously injured. They called every available ambulance in Honolulu. Frank, let me say this. In my career, and I've been following this, I'm obsessed with weather, as you know. I never ever remember a season quite like wow. this. Wow. Uh, wow, that's saying uh, it's saying quite a bit. Lloyd, if a commuter, I know you mentioned that uh, tornado watch and we're talking with uh, legendary weatherman Lloyd Lindsay Young, very grateful to have him on the program. You mentioned that uh, tornado watch in the uh, Birmingham area. How much notice does a community have that there might be a tornado in their area? And has that sort of notification system improved with technology over the years? That's a great question, Frank. Yes, it has. As to how much notice, now keep something in mind. I'll answer that in just a second. How much notice? Well, the National Weather Service, either by spotter report, law enforcement report, Doppler radar issued what's called it, so a watch is upgraded to a warning. Now, in these small rural communities throughout the Deep South, 
sirens go off, if you have a weather radio, it will go off. The answer, unfortunately, is just a matter of a few minutes. Mm. So, for example, a lot of people who live in Tornado Alley, which is Oklahoma and around the Dallas, Texas area, have tornado cellars, and they go literally into the cellars. But unfortunately, these rural communities, most of the homes in places like Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, away from the metropolitan areas, I'm not talking about Atlanta, I'm talking about rural Georgia, they don't have tornado cellars. And what was so horrible about these tornadoes that hit Mississippi, they happened at night. And unbelievably, one of them went, traveled 110 miles, which is very, very rare. It's like a tornado train. And, you know, very little warning. And, And people have got to learn to take them seriously. The good news is that they're not like hurricanes that infect a large geographical area, but boy, that where they hit, sometimes they can be absolutely horrendous. So, oh. you know, but yes, the technology has improved. Uh, in general, I think it's better than it was, but it's still very dangerous. All right. What else is happening weather-wise around the country, Lloyd, that uh, our listeners should be aware of and uh, worth taking a look at and taking notice of? Well, a little of it is kind of humorous. For example, uh, Palm Springs, California, a a real ritzy uh, town where, well, people go there from Southern California to warm up. Wrong. It was a financial disaster. It's been cold all winter and spring. For example, Palm Springs should be in the 80s. Well, they were in the 50s. Uh, Another place, Lake Tahoe, a very famous skier. There were a week, a week or more, you couldn't even, not only couldn't you get there, the ski resorts were actually closed because the lifts were buried in snow. Also, big one, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, California, the winds up to 88 miles an hour, so strong, the major airports had to close. I've never seen that before. And a semi-truck was blown over on one of the major bridges across San Francisco Bay. And tragically, there were, uh, I think, five or six deaths, five deaths in the Bay Area. Thousands of trees fell down, which is unprecedented. Another bizarre thing, a lot of roofs have collapsed on many of the resorts in the Sierra Nevada. And it was another tragedy, unfortunately, in the dead of winter, Well, there were fatalities. Some of the elderly people in the mountains of Southern California were digging out of 10 feet of snow. They couldn't make it. They ran out of food. They ran out of medicine. The National Guard was supposed to go in there and rescue them, and they failed at that. So, yeah, it's just been the most bizarre season. When will it end? Well, all of our long-range computer models keep the West unusually cool. Now, let's talk about the Northeast, Frank. New York City, exactly where you're sitting. Normal snowfall, 38 inches. You've had three or four. See how crazy things are? Oh, yeah. It's all cockeyed and <laughs> mixed up, you know. And Lloyd, I, you know, that's the next thing I was going to ask you about, why uh, New York had such an unseasonably warm winter, at least when it came to snowfall. And uh, for well, a lot of people, that answer is quite obvious. A lot of people are quick to point out, well, this is just what happens when you have uh, climate change and when you have the earth gradually warm warming. And I know that can be sort of a controversial topic, and I don't want to ask you to wade into anything that's overly controversial that you may not want to comment on. But 
do you have an opinion on on climate change and whether it's affecting weather in places like New York? Definitely. Climate change is real. And I'm not being political. Al Gore mentioned it in 2013. You know, I don't have any strong opinions either way on him personally, but I'll tell you one thing. Climate change is definitely real. Iceberg ice is melting in Greenland. Even in Antarctica, ice is melting. So, yeah, okay, getting back specifically to the Northeast, Philadelphia, New York. Well, ridges of high pressure maintained. The jet stream is nowhere near the Northeast. So that's why New York City has had their a record-breaking low snow season. I mean, come on. As I mentioned, the normal 38 inches has been three or four. I mean, you know, of course, Buffalo. Now, that was another one. Buffalo was just buried in lake-effect snow. That was another disaster. But uh, fortunately for uh, the I-95 corridor, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Boston got some. But, uh, boy, I'll tell you what, the tri-state area, very lucky. Is it over? Probably. And keep something else in mind. Major League Baseball begins Thursday. Will there be rainouts on the West Coast? Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> you know, and will there be snowouts in Denver? Maybe. So, uh, yeah, it's just so – a good rule of thumb. If one coast is wet and cold, the other one is warm and dry and vice versa, except this season – it's been exceptionally strong, exceptionally strong. Oh, and by the way, by the way, the Farmer's Almanac called for a dry, mild winter in the West. Wrong, <laughs> wrong, wrong. It's as fictional as a $3 bill. Yeah. Uh- uh, Lloyd, uh, on a on a more positive note, and I, I always like to uh, have at least a dose of positivity whenever we speak because sure. you have such positive energy. In the New York area, it was delightful this weekend. Uh, on Sunday, yeah. I walked around short sleeves, no jacket, got to enjoy yeah. a leisurely walk with my wife and son, and not to mention a cigar. I'm curious, uh, what are we in store for weather-wise in the Northeast, at least for the short term? In the short term, I see a continuation of above normal temperatures, drier than normal, and here it is late March. Uh, who knows, Frank, any hopes of snow may be out the window. After all, the uh, Yankees are getting ready to open up at the San Francisco Giants on Thursday. We can't have snow outs for that. No, I think you're out of the woods as far as snow goes. After all, April 1 isn't that far away, and I'm not April fooling about that. <laughs> you have dodged a bullet, young man. The tri-state area has escaped old man winter. Old man winter has passed away for uh, 22-23 as far as the Northeast goes. Lloyd, uh, you are a delight, not only a weather authority, but one of the best broadcasters I've ever had the privilege to to know. And uh, a week or so ago when someone asked me if I was the program director of WABC, what would I do? I mentioned bringing on board Lloyd Lindsay Young would be uh, close to the top of my priority list. You make every radio station you're on better, every radio show you're on better, and it's a joy to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. One final thing. I I really miss being on the air on a regular basis when it's like this. Yeah, you know. Most weather people, we don't like tragedy, but we like wild weather. Frank, it's been an honor and a privilege, and I hope to be with uh, with you again 
On the other side of midnight, one of the greatest radio programs in America. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Lloyd. I appreciate that. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, that's 800-848-9222. That is the great Lloyd Lindsay Young. And I'm sincere. I I mean that. um, That uh, Lloyd would be a great addition to uh, to not just WABC, but any of our affiliates, WCBM, Nevada Talk Radio Network. If you're in need of a serious Weatherman with great bona fides, KB, KBYR in, uh, in Anchorage, WUCT in, uh, in Nashville, 100 uh, percent, I think he would be a huge asset. We'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Sign Ace of Base. I'll be honest, I've always found this song, at least when it was out, I found it kind of annoying. But, um, but, uh, you know what? Over the years, it's grown on me somewhat. It is kind of catchy. Maybe I heard it too much that year it came out. What was it, 96, 97, right around there? Uh, but anyway, uh, we're not playing it because it's grown on me. We are playing it because today, believe it or not, is the, well, I'm not sure why it's such an unbelievable thing I'm about to mention, but uh, today is my wife Rachel's birthday, so happy birthday to her. Uh, she is <clears throat> years, years old, and um, we got to uh, got to celebrate a little bit this weekend, a little bit last weekend, and we're going to celebrate a little bit uh, in a couple weeks again, so it's a staggered birthday celebration but uh, hopefully all of her wishes come true today and always all right first we have a little bit of uh, breaking news that broke just the in the last 20 minutes proudly presents breaking news. you know i hate to do that i hate to say there's breaking news and then play the breaking news sounder that's such a rookie mickey mouse move i hate to do that i'm embarrassed that i just did that uh i pretend you didn't hear that now the fact of the matter this is just breaking within the last 20 minutes or so In line with what we were talking about earlier, First Citizens Bank is going to be acquiring Silicon Valley Bank. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation announced the deal late Sunday, had been looking for a buyer since seizing control of the bank. And um, now First Citizen Bank shares will acquire Citizen Valley Bank, the California lender whose collapse this month sent shockwaves across the financial sector. The FDIC seized control of Silicon Valley Bank on March 10th after a run on deposits had left it insolvent. So there you go. That is the latest. That is the latest. I think uh, it underscores a lot of what we said at the start of the show. Not necessarily as it relates to Piers Morgan, but uh, a lot of stuff in general. All right. Um, Hey, you know, speaking of um, 
my family life and my home life. I heard my son is obsessed with playing with the remote control for the television set. And it's an Apple TV set. So you just press menu and a whole world opens up. You could press menu and say, uh, watch uh, Breaking Bad. And then it'll bring you whatever network Breaking Bad is on. You don't have to go to the specific app or it'll just come. It'll come up. And sometimes there's multiple options. For instance, The Office, I think you could watch in five different places. And um, it's very convenient. There's only three or four buttons, and you could do a lot with just those three or four buttons. You remember the remote controls of 15 years ago? Remember when remote controls had a big moment when there was, was 900 buttons, and you could, yeah, it looked like you were piloting the, the space shuttle with one of these remote controls? Those days are over. Now we have a much more, much more user-friendly, much more minimalist format when it comes to remote controls. And my son, Carmine, has taken advantage of this. He, I told you a couple of months ago, had purchased, maybe a month or so ago, the Major League Soccer package. Now, we try to keep this remote control hidden from him. We try to keep it in places where he can't reach. He's only, I don't know, 30 inches thereabouts. So his reach is relatively limited. And yet he keeps finding this remote control. We try and snatch it away from him. So last week... Apparently, he keeps trying to buy the Fablemans, and some. Usually, my wife is able to to stop him when when he is purchased to or poised to poach, purchase the Fablemans. Well, last week he was finally successful. Now we've already seen the Fablemans, but he insisted on buying it for twenty dollars. And so my wife checks the box where you can request a refund. And one of the items that you can look for in requesting a refund is purchased by a child who did not have authorization to buy it. And we just got the word just yesterday that uh, our purchase of the Fablemans has thankfully been refunded. That is no reflection on Steven Spielberg and Judd Hirsch and the people in the Fablemans, but more reflection on the fact that we don't have the $20 to part with right now. All right. Uh, no guests for the rest of the show, so we're going to do commendations a little bit later. We're going to have plenty of opportunity to take your phone calls. Uh, we'll take your calls on anything and everything. So if you have uh, something on your mind that you want to get off your chest, a day where we only have one guest is a good thing, a good day to do that. If it's something I've covered, if it's something that we've talked about on the radio, or whatever. The, 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 the limit, only limit is your imagination. 800-848-9222. In fact, let us see what's on your mind, Gregory, in Ohio. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. I'm just wondering, is this WABC or WOR? <laughs> it's a good question, Greg. You got me. I, I got a question for you and maybe Lloyd. I've been reading that, uh, you know, with the climate change, uh, we had some hellacious winds here the uh, last two days and lost my power. I live here uh, by Canton, Ohio. Uh, you know, the Earth is tilt. Is, is the Earth tilt is changed by ten degrees? I, I did not know that. Yeah, and it, it's supposed to go on like that for uh, ten years till it goes back to its normal uh, tilt, which is when you are, be our normal weather. That's oh. what's causing all this. Oh, uh, you sound much better informed about it than I am, Greg. So uh, I, I'm going to have to well, take maybe, your word. Maybe Lloyd, maybe Lloyd can address that in the future if you talk to yeah, him again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I will absolutely uh, do that. Thank you. Um, 
Uh, now, I don't want to rush anybody. Al in Manhattan, Ralph in New Jersey, we'll try and get to you next hour. 800-848-9222, six open lines if you want to comment. Uh, 800-848-9222. Coming up uh, a little bit later, we're going to talk AI, we're going to talk Blockbuster, we're going to talk social media, we're going to talk TikTok. There's a lot going on, um, which is one of the reasons I'm glad we only had one guest today, because there's a lot that I want to go through, and I'm glad we'll have to th- the time to do it. Until next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. America is addicted to social media, especially young people. Look, I guess I'm as guilty as anybody. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I don't do much on Instagram, although I am about to share what I think is a very cute photograph of my newly 16-month-old son on there. So if you want to see it, you can follow me at Morano Vision. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision. Uh, but um, and I'm also on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. But uh, obviously the thing that's gotten the most attention of late is is TikTok. We've seen now congressional hearings. We've talked about the problem with TikTok. And a lot of the people have focused on the issue with TikTok being that it's uh, that it's Chinese owned, and uh, I think that's certainly a legitimate uh, a legitimate problem, a legitimate beef, one hundred percent. And I think Bill Maher uh, made a good point in discussing this on his show on Friday, his show on HBO, and he was talking about Jamal Bowman. And look, I'm sympathetic to the Jamal Bowman argument because I don't like banning things. I really don't like being an authoritarian and saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. And Jamal Bowman um, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others, they're saying, look, you can't do this. This is just – they're saying it's essentially racism. But this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She posted on TikTok for the first time over the weekend. This is a little bit of what she said in her defense of TikTok. So – To me, the solution here is not to ban an individual company, but to actually protect Americans from this kind of egregious data harvesting that companies can do without your significant ability to say no. And usually when the United States is proposing a very major move that has something to do with significant risk to national security, one of the first things that happens is that Congress receives a classified briefing. And I can tell you that Congress has not received a classified briefing around the allegations of national security risks regarding TikTok. So why would we be proposing a ban regarding such a significant issue without being clued in on this at all? It just doesn't feel right to me. And additionally, this case needs to be made to the public. 
we are a government by the people and for the people. And if we want to make a decision as significant as banning TikTok, and we believe, or someone believes, that there's really important information that the public deserves to know about why such a decision would be justified, that information should be shared with the public as well. But frankly, I think a lot of this is putting the cart before the horse because our first priority should be in protecting your ability to exist without social media companies harvesting and commodifying every single piece of data about you, without you, and without your consent. Now, I, I agree with that. I agree with what she said there. I think we do need, and they've reformed this in Europe, I think we do need to reform this situation where uh, social media companies can harvest this data without your consent, 100%. By the way, I did hear from our owner, John Katsimatidis. He was listening to our bank situation uh, earlier at the top of the show. He may call in at some point this hour or throughout the show to give us his expertise. Obviously, he's got a lot of uh, a lot to say on the banking issue, and I can't think of a better authority. So we may hear from him uh, at some point soon. But just on the TikTok front uh, and the social media situation more generally, The problem, so those who oppose a ban say there are better options, like making it safer for users or forcing its sale. Some argue that TikTok is no more dangerous than any other social media app, and most of the data is already for sale anyway. Others say a ban would harm creators, new businesses, and marginalized people. And I get all that. Many who support a ban say the security threats are real, And TikTok has already done a few of the things that we fear most. Some say a ban should just be the beginning of the fight to better secure Americans' digital privacy. And others say TikTok is an effective propaganda tool that's already having an impact. Bill Maher uh, talked about that on on his show on HBO Friday. In general, I mean, I I know this is the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war and, uh, you know, the naivete that we had with Iran taking over that country. It just makes me think about this, just in broad strokes. To not be naive about China, really, are they doing it? Of course they're doing it because they're the country that puts the Uyghurs in camps. They're the country that locks you in your apartment if you had COVID. They did crazy things. They... It's a president for life. It's a surveillance state. It's, 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 and, you know, I saw there's one congressman, Bowman of New York, who said, this is, all a, a, this is wrong because it's racist. This, this crazy card that they play, some people, that you can't criticize China, the new Islam. You can't criticize any human rights violations because it makes you racist. So I, I tend to side with Bill Maher on this. I, again, I don't like banning things, but... I maybe could be convinced otherwise, that, but I mean, I wish it was owned by an American company or or a non-Chinese company. If that makes me racist, so be it. I don't think it does because uh, one of the things that I hate most about Chinese, the Chinese government, is what they've done to the Chinese people. But that's neither here nor there. So many of the problems with TikTok, and you know who weighed in on this uh, was actually uh, none other than uh, Eric Adams over the weekend, believe it or not. The, um, uh, actually, he was on, I forget which, which Sunday show, but he was on one of the Sunday shows saying he's all for a TikTok ban. And he didn't mention so much the propaganda situation. He mentioned social media turning kids' brains into mush. Well, Utah, as of last week, has a new law. Sweeping social media legislation passed, and basically this is an attempt to shield children 
and teens from the effects of social media, the at least the poor effects of social media, and empower parents to decide whether their children should be using apps like TikTok or Instagram. What's not clear is if and how the new rules can be enforced and whether they will create unintended consequences for kids and teens already coping with a mental health crisis. So what exactly did Utah do? So essentially Utah has passed a parental consent law. This is the first state in the entire country to limit teen access to social media. So essentially you're going to have to get parental consent to use these social media apps or verify that you are a user over the age of 18. The governor signed the two sweeping measures, what he said, to protect young people in the state. The bills will give parents full access to their children's online accounts, including posts and private messages. The move comes amidst heightened concern over the impact of social media on children's mental health. Now, I wouldn't like that. I didn't have, obviously, I didn't, they didn't really have social media when I was a, a child, but I wouldn't like my parents being able to read messages that I was sending to people. They, I, I wouldn't like that at all if I was under the age of 18. But at the same time, I do like the idea of parental consent for, for minors. Look, you need parental consent for a lot of things that have not caused as much harm to young people's brain as social media. So under these measure, these measures that were enacted on Thursday, a parent, parent or guardian's explicit consent will be needed before children can create accounts on apps like Instagram, Facebook, and uh, TikTok. The bills also impose a social media curfew that blocks children's access between 10.30 at night and 6.30 in the morning unless adjusted by their parents. Under their legislation, social media companies will no longer be able to collect a child's data or be targeted for advertising. I agree with that 100%. The two bills, which are also designed to make it easier to take legal action against social media companies, are going to take effect in about a year, March 1st of 2024. Governor Spencer Cox, a Republican, wrote on Twitter, we're no longer willing to let social media companies continue to harm the mental health of our youth. As leaders and parents, we have a responsibility to protect our young people. My question for you, what do you think of this? Would you want this in your state? Why or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Utah State Senator Mike McKell was on Michael Smirconish's show on CNN talking about uh, about this new social media law. This is what he had to say on this. Well, we, we want to see some broad change across the system. We, we are very concerned with what we've seen out there in the public. I, I appreciate the fact that you bring up the issue of mental health. We've got a mental health crisis. I, I know you've covered it in your show before. There are a lot of negative impacts from social media, and, and we want to change that. We, we want to see significant change. I really appreciate Congress right now, the President of the United States. There's good bipartisan support. I think we're all on board, and, and, and that's the goal. What do you say? 
800-848-9222 if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on anything else that we've covered, though, as well. Let me say hello to the Fugazi Tom in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom. Hey, how you doing? Okay, a couple of things here. How easy is it to deceive these um, uh, uh, online companies that the parents are doing the right thing? That that don't make sense to me. Parental control is take control of your kids. Give them a certain time to watch and certain things to watch in that time. That's it's always going to have to be up to the customer. Who can make any of that thing, you know, happen? Be 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 um obeyed, you know, stuff like that. And you know, it's up to the parents. The parents going to do what they want to do. The parents have to be responsible. That's how I feel about that. Well, and, I, I, uh, I agree with you. Ahead. I agree with you. But you have a, a situation where a lot of parents aren't responsible. Well, you ain't going to get them to be responsible because you tell them to be. That's going to make them. You cannot make them be responsible no matter what you tell them. Okay? Mm -hmm. So putting any kind of rules, this and that, who's going to be around to enforce these? Again, I I don't know uh, what specifically specifically would be done, but uh, but, uh, I think that's that's fair. Okay. Do you have another comment? Yeah, yeah. About the – I got a couple more, but it's in here. The banks. Who, what happens to the people who are involved in these collapses, including the feds, who don't never see anything until it's too late? You know, what happens to these people? They get away with it, right? I well, mean, that's I mean, the biggest theft that can n- be. Not only do know, they so get away easy. with it, not only do they get away with it, they make a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they ain't going out broke. Everybody else going to be broke. They're not going out broke. Well, exactly. In my view, uh, that's that's exactly the problem as far as I'm concerned, Tom. Thank you. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Is this the right Reverend Franklin around? Uh, it is indeed. How are you, my friend? All right. And happy birthday to your wife. Thank right? you. Thank you. Yeah, I had a couple of comments about uh, the uh, the banks. If I have a couple of moments, if I don't, uh, I'll keep it short. Uh, to me, it's always the usual suspects. 2008, average interest rate on a credit card, 12%. What does the Fed do? Give everybody zero money, all those banks. What is the interest rate right now? 24%, right. even though many cards are 28%. So where did all that billions and billions go? As always, people, you know, the bank uh, presidents, the owners, the shareholders, uh, we know that gas is going to go up tremendously. Biden wants all the oil companies. Hey, listen, don't do anything outrageous. Under the cover of daylight, what do they do? Hundreds of billions of dollars, records, records. And what happens? Always return to the shareholders. When they want to lower it, it comes down a nickel over a month. When they want to raise it, a quarter over a month. Right. You know what I mean? And when you went to a bank in the early 80s, 90s, you don't even say, hi, sir. Would you like a 10-speed bike? Would you like a microwave? You know what they gave you the whole time since 2008 with something they created, right? Zero percent. One percent. Show them 50000 We'll give you one. But they charge rates that I have to tell you nobody else would. Thirty percent is basically what they're getting. So they just get the record profits. Moderna and Pfizer, they all got, guess what, billions to develop it. They sell it for $32. You know what they say now? Hey, you know what? We noticed that the diabetes people are gouging people for insulin for $500 when it's really only a $40 deal. Guess what? We want now $130 for all these things that are going to save people's lives that we developed with federal money. And we still make billions of dollars. 
but it's not enough. We still want more, more, more. When you buy gas, you know what it says, 99.9. You know, what's that line? Who are we fooling? Round it up. Congress, they work 160 days a year, right? They make about $1,100 a day when they're working, all right? They can't even get the time straight. Where Everybody knows it sucks at 4 o'clock at night. It's depressing and dark. Change it. Guess what? We did it. We're working on it. We're doing it. We're going to do it. Nothing ever changes. They want to put Social Security in a private account. What? Like right now, what's happening? And explain, hey, the whole thing went down south. Too bad. Keep it working. When you went to the post office many years ago, you could get a postal bank. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah, I've talked about that a, a great deal, Al. You I get know. no, no, nothing, nothing but support me, for me on that. Nothing changes. And you're doing a great, great job. And it was good to have uh, Lloyd Lindsay on. Really, really good. Get them back, all right? Thanks, Al. Appreciate the advice. 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you want to comment. I, I am eager. I am surprised we don't have more people commenting on the proposed ban for a, um, not ban, but the pro- proposed parental consent requirement for minors in the state of Utah. I think this is tremendously revolutionary. And uh, I I would be in favor of something like this in my state. Would you? 800-848-9222. Matt, you have an opinion on this? You know, it's funny you talking about TikTok and the ban, because I was watching this TikTok video just yesterday. Are you on TikTok? Yes. You are? Yes. Do you want to give your video handle, or you'd rather... No, nah, there's, no? like, nothing on there. I don't, okay. I don't really have anything. Are um, you more of a watcher than a creator? Yeah. Okay. I've done, like, three little stupid videos okay. that are nothing. Um but the video I was watching is of this woman and her mother, and it's like an older lady, and she just does these funny TikTok videos and gets comments from her mother, and she's cursing up a storm and saying all these things, and they do the topic of the TikTok ban. And she goes, well, she goes, Mom, what do you think about the TikTok ban? And she goes, why are they going to ban TikTok? And she goes, well, because they're saying that the Chinese are going to spy on us. She goes, spying on us? She goes, but if I talk about that I need a new comforter, they start sending me ads about a comforter. She goes, they're already spying on us. She goes, well, who's spying on us? She goes, the government. She goes, well, if they ban TikTok, then I guess we're going to have to go to Instagram. She goes, well, I don't want to have to go to Instagram. I want to stay on TikTok, and they're already spying on us. So I think, I guess it's a vote against a TikTok ban, or at least a parental consent Parental consent is one thing, um, but I don't think they should ban TikTok. Yeah. Um, No, but on the parental consent aspect of things, you think minors should have to get a parent's permission before using social media? Kenneth, you're closer to being in this age range. Um, What's your opinion? I mean, I'd say I'd agree that they need some sort of parental guidance, but I mean— even if but they consent, put, consent requirement, that's what we're talking about. Right. I mean, I agree with that. But even still, kids can still go on Instagram and Twitter and see whatever they can see on that. No, but Instagram, well, Twitter's not covered by this. But Instagram and Facebook, they would also be covered by this parental consent requirement as well. Well, then I agree with that. But Twitter, I'd argue Twitter's even worse. I mean, the videos that you could find on that. There's, they have really no sort of guidelines on what can be posted and what can't. Yeah, I'm not sure. And thanks, Ken. I, I'm not sure if Twitter is covered by this Utah bill. But so far, every article I've read, it mentions TikTok, it mentions Facebook, it mentions Instagram. I haven't seen um, the other ones, Twitter, Snapchat, even YouTube, which I guess to some extent is a social media uh, application as well. 800-848-9222. Marianne is in... Oh, sorry. Marianne's in Queens. Hello, Marianne. 
Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, a couple of things. Um, I would like to comment on the downfall of the banks. Um, we had to remember in 2008 when we had that crisis, and it had to do with the housing market. What's going on here in, now is that so many legislations have been put with the last Congress that we had until this year that the Republicans took over. They did not have anyone to oppose what they do, what they did. And actually, um, the falling of the economy brought as a consequence uh, an inflation that was hurting everyone. And also, another thing that I see that the Biden administration did to hurt our country is the gas industry, the oil. He totally emaciated them. Now, as a consequence of this inflation, the, the, reserve, the Federal Reserve had to increase the rates. That means that, again, the mortgage uh, business was going to be affected. Yeah. And we have so many. Any, anything that you buy now, it's double what you see oh, yeah. in price. Yeah, that's true. So that, I believe, that panic, the banks, which has been, you know, doing whatever the government allowed them to do. So, in my opinion, what we had in 2008 is happening now. Now, blaming only Obama for what happened, I don't think it's right. No, I'm not. I'm not. Biden, at all. No, yeah, but oh, if, you, if you allow me to, Go you ahead, know, yeah. just to continue, Biden was the vice president, so he will applaud everything that Obama did. Why now he's talking to things? It was him he, who called yeah, this, but, this but crisis. Yeah, so, but so as it stands now, do you think Obama, excuse me, do you think Biden is right that we should claw back the money from these bankers that made this money prior to the bank failing? Well, I, I do agree, but what his motivations are, he was the one that causes it. So now he's blaming the, well, uh, Donald yeah. Trump. Let me let me finish. Uh, okay, he well, Marion, I got to get to some other people. Thank you. Uh, Joe is in Ron Conkema. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Before I get to the important stuff, I want to wish your wife a very happy birthday. Thank you. Today is actually my sister and my daughter. She's turning uh, sixteen today. Oh, uh, special very nice birthday up there. I agree with you hundred percent. I think they should have parental locks on all these sites. I mean, my son, he's eleven. And he's able to get by – he's very good with computers. He can get by all these parental locks. I think there should be some way that you have to put some sort of credit card information, like, you know, just a number in so they can verify your age. These kids – and I don't – my wife monitors what the kids are doing on there. But my daughter's TikToks, sometimes I'm watching them, Frank, and my hair, you can actually see it turning gray. And it's just it's it, I'm I'm totally with you 100 percent on that. Yeah. So um, as a parent now, Joe, do you think do you and your children, do you argue over their social media use? Like, do you and your wife ever try to uh, limit their social media use and they sort of rebel and push back against that? Or how does that work? The current dynamic? Well, my son, we totally, you know, we're monitoring him. You know, because he's 11. My daughter, she's 16. 
we've spoken to her. We explained to her that she's going to be going to college soon, and they're going to they look at your social media. We don't really have to yell at her that much. She knows. Plus, she's got a very serious boyfriend, so she doesn't want to embarrass herself, you know, on there by sure. doing something that's going to affect her life. But um, we do monitor it, and if I see something that I we say automatically take it down. Hey, Frank, great show. Th- thanks, I appreciate it. Happy birthday to your family as well. Thank you. 800-848-9222. But the issue, just so folks understand, because I think Joe made a number of good points, um, but the issue is not just what young people are posting. It's what young people are consuming. And we've seen Instagram specifically, but also these other social media sites, lead to um, really a deleterious mental health effect for young people, especially young girls. One congressman, I believe it was Congressman Bill Rackus, even said to the TikTok CEO that there was uh, uh, someone, I believe, in his state that killed themselves. And he attributed that, at least in part, to the stress they were put under by uh, consuming all these TikTok videos. Now, when you're talking suicide, there's a lot of factors. But it's not just posting something embarrassing. It's so much more than that. It's how you've got to see the documentary, The the Social Dilemma. And I know Brian Kilmeade did a terrific interview with one of the guys featured in that documentary. He might have even been the director. Uh, I saw it a, cu- a couple of months ago, but uh, it's really great. And it talks about how they, these social media companies, they program these companies to be like digital crack and get your young, young people, especially, but everybody hooked. And it it rewards the same dopamine areas of your brain with when you have a, a notification as when you're when you're doing drugs, quite frankly. So I am all for a parental notification or a parental consent requirement, unless you can make a strong case otherwise. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. It's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I think the uh, the case of um, I think the case of TikTok. I could see both sides of that one a bit better. But when it comes to minors, I don't see anything wrong with something as potentially hazardous as social media requiring at least parental consent. Maybe it causes a parent and a child to have a conversation about their social media usage for the first time and I don't think that's uh I don't think that's a bad thing. 800-848-9220 800-848-9222 this is the other side of midnight straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Street, the homies got at me, collab creations, bump like acne, no doubt. I put it down, never slouch. As long as my credit can vouch, a dog couldn't catch me. Stay out. Tell me who could stop with Drake making moves, attracting honeys like a magnet, giving them orgasms with my mellow This is Still No Dignity by Dr. Dre. This is a selection by my wife Rachel on her birthday. 
I'm endeavoring to have as many of her birthday wishes come true as possible, and this was one that we actually had the ability to do. Uh, meantime, last comment I'll make on the um, Utah law banning social media use without parental consent for young people is that um, I I always try to give the the other side, right? And you have a situation where some people are saying this raises very serious free speech concerns. Ari Cohn, who's a free speech lawyer for Tech Freedom, said the bill posed significant free speech problems. He said further to the BBC, there are so many children who might be in abusive households uh, or who might be LGBT, who could be cut off from social media entirely. I think that's a good point. For a lot of those folks, if you're a child that's being abused and you know your parent gets to check your social media accounts, maybe you're less likely to join, say, a um, a, uh, a support group online or um, have some conversations with people online about what you're going through. If you haven't yet come out to your parents about being gay, for instance, because you're fearful of their reaction and you want to be able to talk about your your sexuality with peers, and even if you're under the 18, maybe you should be able to. That's a fair point. Uh, I still think, I still tend to favor this 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 bill. It's not without its flaws. I'll be the first to admit it. I tend to favor it. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. All right. Uh, there was, uh, so I had a, a busy weekend, but not quite so busy as usual. And uh, I'll give you some highlights throughout the day. But what I generally try to do on the weekends is get up with my uh, get up when my son gets up so that my wife can sleep late because she has to get up with him during the week. And if he ever has a difficult time sleeping during the week, she gets up with him in the middle of the night and she has to take care of him and it's her sleep that's disrupted. So a couple of weeks ago, so I try to do as many chores as I can that she normally does before she wakes up to help out in some small way because she does so much during the week. So one of the things that I always try to do is feed the cats and give them insulin, clean their litter box, and give them fresh water in addition to taking care of our son and giving him breakfast and giving him a bottle and that kind of thing. So last weekend, um, these cats, they're getting on in years, and they have all sorts of health issues. Our one cat, Melchizedek, is diabetic. So we give him insulin, and I can give him insulin no no problem. Our other cat, Bathsheba, has cancer, and she's doing well. Her levels were well within normal range. But we, we have to give her these chemo drugs regularly, which have to be taken with food. That's That's an oral chemotherapy. Last weekend, I have not been giving Bathsheba her chemo drugs. I don't really know how to give her the chemo drugs. So last weekend, my wife says, you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but don't feed the cats on Saturday anymore. I'll feed the cats, meaning her. I'll feed the cats on on Saturdays. You don't have to do it. So Sunday comes around. Carmine's awake. I get up with him. 
And the cats are looking around very hungry. So my wife did not say, don't feed them on Sunday. She said, don't feed them on Saturday. So I'm thinking, all right, maybe they get chemo. Maybe Bathsheba gets chemo every other day or three or four times a week. Maybe if they get it both days, maybe my wife would have said, just don't give, don't feed them on the weekend. So I said, she probably, she didn't say Sunday. She didn't say the weekend. So I could probably feed them and not have to worry about giving Bathsheba her chemo medicine. So I feed them and uh, doing, going through our whole routine, making Carmine breakfast and so forth. It's all good. And, Everything's going well, and cats are fed. Melchizedek gets his insulin. We have a tiny refrigerator. I mean, it's not. it fills up very quickly. It, we go to a restaurant once or order something once and go to one of our family's house once, and we get any sort of leftovers to take home. It's just done. We got milk in there for him. We got all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. It it. It's not a super tiny refrigerator. It's not like a refrigerator that you'd keep in an office somewhere, but it's small. It's not spacious, not super spacious. I'm hoping to get another refrigerator, but that's uh, that's a work in progress, uh, meaning an additional refrigerator for the basement. But it's neither here nor there. But the the cheese is in the same area of the refrigerator as Melchizedek's insulin. So I've already insulin him Sunday morning. Okay. And I'm making Carmine's breakfast, and I'm making him some scrambled eggs. Carmine enjoys scrambled eggs with a little, little cheese. So the cheese is right next to the insulin. So I go to reach for the cheese. It's uh, shredded, the shredded variety. It's kind of... Sh- Cheddar and some other things. Just throw a little on there. He likes it and he enjoys it. So I get it. And as I pick out the the cheese, Melchizedek's insulin falls out of the box that it's in, and it's in a, a little tiny glass bottle, falls to the floor, cracks open, and we lose all of his insulin on the floor. So now I am just waiting for how I'm going to explain to my wife, because this insulin is expensive. As those of you that are humans that, uh, that take insulin can tell you, it's even, even a worse situation for a pet. So I'm waiting to see how I can explain this to them. So the, all the insulin's gone, and I'm picking up as many pieces of broken glass as I can. And, of course, I didn't get them all. I thought I got them all, but my wife comes down, and she's got a, she's got a, a special X-ray vision that lets her see shards of glass that, uh, that, I, that I am not capable of seeing. So she does some additional cleaning and some additional vacuuming. I do another once-over, and we get all the glass. And uh, apparently she's done this before as well. Not in a while, but uh, she's done this before as well. Knocked over the insulin and had it shatter. And she said, why do they make it in a glass vial? So immediately, because we don't want Melchizedek to go too long without insulin, 
Immediately, she calls her supplier of pet drugs, and she orders some more insulin. But first, she asks the question, is there any way that I can order this in a plastic bottle rather than a glass bottle so that if it falls, if this happens again, it doesn't break? And can you believe it? They said no. They don't offer it in plastic. And I just find that so strange because it has to be refrigerated. And I can't imagine we're the only ones who have ever had this problem. I don't know. Maybe there's something about insulin that you can't put it in plastic. or I don't know why they would do that. Why would you, when so much is made from plastic these days, for better or worse, why would you make it so that you can't even have the option of getting in, in plastic rather than in glass? Wondering if any of you know. 800-848-9222. So I was genuinely curious. And it turns out Bathsheba does get her chemotherapy pill every day. But um, the uh, – so I, maybe the the sound thing will be for me to just learn how to properly – administer her chemotherapy pill so that I can still continue to feed the cats if they're hungry before my wife uh, before my wife wakes up. So I was a double loser because Bathsheba then didn't get her chemotherapy in the morning. My wife had to chase her down with some treats and try to give it to her that way. And uh, we broke the we broke the insulin bottle. So uh, all in all in a day's work. It was uh, all, all in all it was a good weekend. The, the, the one thing and this was sort of bittersweet. Carmine woke up Saturday morning, so Friday night into Saturday morning, around 1.15, 1.30 in the morning, crying hysterically, crying hysterically. And um, I went in there because, I, you know, I, like I said, I try and look after him on the weekend if he wakes up at night. So I go in there with a bottle, and I, we leave him there for a while to cry. But if it's clear... He's not subsiding after five, six, seven minutes, and he's standing up in his crib. It's clear he's not going back to sleep. I mean, imagine this, for five or six, seven minutes while you're trying to sleep. So I said to my wife, should we leave him? She said, no, then of us are going to be able to sleep if he's screaming like this. So I go in there. He was having a fit, having a fit wouldn't let me give him his bottle, which has never happened before when he's crying like this. So he keeps going. He's he's arching his back backwards and moving his mouth away from the bottle. Won't let me change him. Won't let me do anything. So then my wife comes in, and, of course, she's got some sort of a magic touch, and he he's able to take the bottle from her. She gives him the bottle. He goes back to sleep. She goes back to sleep. I try to go back to sleep, and I am wide awake, wide awake, cannot go back to sleep. I lie in bed, eyes closed, for 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, sitting there. I said, okay, now I'm just not being productive. I'm awake, clearly not able to go back to sleep. And again, I haven't consumed caffeine in about three weeks. So it's not as if I had coffee at dinner or anything or chocolate. No. So I said, all right, let, let me go and let me go and do make myself useful. So I went and did some work on the show. I finally got some reading done. I picked up for the, a, a book uh, got, got that I'd been 
reading for a while, and I uh, answered some correspondence. Uh, it was uh, my uh, was painfully listening to Curtis and uh, and Avery, uh, listening to Avery bash me for referencing Seinfeld too often of all things, but. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get back to sleep. So I was up basically from 1.30 on Saturday morning for the rest of the day. And so I was a little tired. And uh, my sister-in-law, Sharon, and my co-brother-in-law, James, came over. They brought over their new baby, Eric, Carmine's Carmine's first cousin. And we had a good time. We went out to dinner with them. And uh, I was just a little beat. But we went to went to bed early on uh, on Saturday. So it's all good. 800-848-9222, though. I'm curious if anybody knows why they don't at least offer the option of buying this insulin in plastic. I found it so strange. Hopefully you had a good weekend as well. Oh, so Sunday, we were we were supposed to go to my brother's in Brooklyn for a, a family brunch. And we get a text message that, my brother's girlfriend is sick. She's got a cold. She says everybody should stay away. And then Alex, uh, and then she points out that she got it from my brother Alex. Then my brother Nick says, oh, I also had a bad cold last week, and I had to I had to stay home from work three days. People may want to stay away from me as well. So Rachel says, we have so much going on this week. She says, um... We're getting our taxes done. We have all these appointments. We have so much going on. Uh, really, none of us can get sick this week. Do you really want to risk getting going there and getting a cold? So we decided not to go. Uh, so on the one hand, I was sorry I didn't get to see everybody, especially since we brought all this food and stuff to bring over there. But uh, on the other, I was happy for the first weekend that I can remember that we didn't have to leave the borough in which we live to go elsewhere. So... Uh, it was a much more relaxing Sunday than than it usually is. I'm trying not to commit to anything anymore on Sunday, and I'm having mixed success with that. Joe is in New Jersey. Joe, what's on your mind? Hey, Frank. Uh, a couple of things for the insulin, why it can't be in plastic. Uh, like a lot of drugs have to be in glass so they don't like lose potency or uh, react. Uh, nitroglycerin, insulins are probably in the same category has to be in a glass container. Oh, so the 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 plastic would actually change the the chemical consistency of insulin? It it might yeah, like in, I'm not I'm not 100% sure uh, of insulin how it affects it. Like nitroglycerin it, it'll leach out through the plastic. Oh, interesting. Potency. Uh it, so it'll either not protect it or it'll react with plastic one, interesting. one or the other. Okay. I'm not I'm not sure. Got it. And just to save you some money for the uh, insulin uh, you probably see the commercials for the GoodRx app or the Single Care. You could use that with pets. Um, you might want to go on that app, put in the insulin, and then purchase it preferably at like a, a – I work for a, a pharmacy, uh, so sometimes uh, it's not the best price at my particular pharmacy, but you go to a Walmart or a ShopRite or a food store, the prices are much lower because you're, you're paying for – you know, not 24 hours. I'm here in the middle of the night working, so there's there's fees, there's ex- expenses that they have to cover. So it's more expensive in my particular store. But if you could go to Stop and Shop and pick it up, let's say, 
with the GoodRx app, you might save really a, a lot of money or the signal care. Plug it in and see what it says. It'll tell you your options and what stores and what prices. Interesting. Okay. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that very much. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this or anything else we're talking about. Any subject is fair game. Uh, we, this is the show where we cover anything and everything. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. Other Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. You get what you give. Another bumper music selection by my lovely wife, Rachel, who is celebrating her birthday today. 800-848-9222. Hey, I thought this was really interesting. There is a Harvard physicist that we've had on the show, Avi Loeb, who is organizing a $1.5 million search to Papua New Guinea to look for an interstellar object that crashed into the ocean in 2014. And uh, he believes that um, there's actually a chance that this could be an alien probe. So I, I found this really interesting. So this ambitious expedition organized by Loeb, who is the chairman of Harvard's astronomy department, not exactly a crackpot, and the founder of the extraterrestrial hunting Galileo project. In a blog post, Loeb announced he's in search of fragments of CNEOS-1 2014, which smashed into Earth in 2014 and exploded into tiny fragments about 100 kilometers off the coast of an island in Papua New Guinea. And is a quote. Within a couple of months, I will be leading an expedition to collect the fragments of the first interstellar meteor. This meteor is the first near-Earth object ever detected by humans from outside the solar system. In his post, Loeb posits that his exploration to the depths of the ocean could possibly turn up fragments of alien technology launched a billion years ago 
by an ancient civilization outside our solar system. Um, Paula Antonelli from the Museum of Modern Art said, in case we recover a sizable technological relic from the Pacific Ocean, um, oh, no, excuse me. This is what Avi Loeb told Paula Antonelli. He said, in case we recover a sizable technological relic from the Pacific Ocean, I promise the curator of the Museum of Modern Art that I will bring it for display in New York. This piece would represent modernity for us, even though it is a relic of ancient history for the senders. So uh, he detailed his theory in a blog post, writing that he noticed the object in 2019, five years after it came here, and identified it as the first interstellar meteor ever discovered. Isn't that wild? Even if it's not an alien probe, to think that that a meteorite came here from outside the solar system, I think that's so interesting. He also writes that the meteor's origin was confirmed by NASA and the Defense Department, and that analysis from his team concluded that the meteor was comprised of material much harder than all of the other 272 meteors in NASA's Center for New Earth, excuse me, Near Earth Object Studies. So I think that's interesting. Loeb says that his team is well prepared for the mission. They have a boat. They have a dream team, including some of the most experienced and qualified professionals in ocean expeditions. And he outlined the details of the operation writing that his team will tow a sled mounted with cameras, magnets, and lights along the ocean floor in a 10-kilometer stretch area, 10-kilometer, 10 by 10, 10 kilometers by 10-kilometer search area that has been verified by a number of sources. The special sand-sifting equipment is now in the final stages of development. He said it's going to be just like mowing the lawn. They're planning to use a sled with a magnet that will scoop a very thin layer off the top of the muck. So, obviously there's some risk with this, and he could also just be wrong. There's a chance it could fail, and we don't know that it is an alien probe. He also admits he needs airtight proof to back up his claim, so we'll see. I uh, I think this is very exciting, very exciting. 800-848-9222. Vito is on Staten Island. Hello, Vito. Hey, Frank. How are you? Listen, that, that uh, song from Young Radicals, that's one of my favorite songs. And uh, the video for it was filmed inside the Staten Island Mall. Oh, you're kidding. No kidding, man. Oh, I'm going to have to watch that uh, during the uh, top of the hour yeah, break. Watch it again. The, the old Staten Island Mall, obviously, but it's filmed in the, in the center court. Yeah, uh, that, and, and to confirm it, I had to Google it, and I, it is it is uh, uh, on the uh, particulars of that video. They'll tell you it was filmed inside the Santa Elmo. Wow, I will do that. Thank you very much, Vito. Very helpful. All right, we got commendations coming up in a moment, and then uh, we will take your calls on whatever you like. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. No more guests. So it's just you and me for the rest of the program. If you want to be heard, there's seven more opportunities to do so. Ralph in New Jersey, I will try and get to you. Until next hour, as Avi Loeb keeps doing, keep asking questions.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, it's funny. I just watched that video, that music video from the New Radicals that, uh, that Vito just referenced. He's exactly right. That video does take place at the mall in the borough in which I live. Again, before it was sort of redesigned. But I've been there so many times. I used to go there all the time. My grandfather was a beautician. And I go and spend the day with him at work a lot of the time. And uh, he was, uh, you know, he would do hair and he'd be working. And a lot of times I would uh, go and get coffee for all the girls that that worked or that were customers in the, in the, uh, this is what I'm 10, nine, 10 years old in the, the barbershop, not the barbershop, but the hair salon that he worked at in the mall. And uh, they'd a lot of times let me keep the change from their order. Say their coffee was uh, 75 cents uh, and they'd give me, you know, uh, whatever amount. Then they'd give me 50 cents, a dollar sometimes, whatever. And then at the end of the day, my goal, I was obsessed at the time with uh, baseball trivia. So at the end of the day, my my goal would be to earn enough money to go to the bookstore and purchase a base, a book on baseball trivia. So I would do all this running around between the salon and the and the and the coffee shops, depending on what kind of coffee people wanted, and then uh, and then to the bookstore. So it's so wild to see that mall that I've been to so many times in a major music video like this. I had no idea. Shame on me for not knowing. And thank you, Vito. And uh, that just might entitle you to one of this week's The Other Side of Midnight presents Commendations. Ah, probably not. It's a little tougher than that to get a uh, commendation, isn't it? All right. I do want to commend, though, the Los Angeles Dodgers. On Wednesday, the L.A. Dodgers renewed contracts for pre-arbitration players Michael Grove and Andrew Tolles. Now, that might sound like a routine piece of baseball business printed in tiny black and white below the more attention-grabbing headlines. Not in this case. Particular, this particular renewal involved one young star and one young man who will more than likely never play baseball again. But in this often cruel business... That hasn't stopped the Dodgers from paying attention to him and sending love his way. The 30-year-old Tolls, a lot of you may remember him. He was a core playoff starter in 2016. He hit 462 in the NLCS. In 2017, he hit 271, and um, he was only in 31 games. But even then, it was likely he was battling unseen demons, which can affect anyone from your happiest friends to someone performing exceptionally on a national stage. Tolls tore his ACL on May 19, 2017, and was unable to recover his kind of swing, his power stroke, when he returned healthy for the season 2018. At least he was physically healthy. He failed to report to spring training on time in 2019, ultimately leaving the team. The year prior, Unbeknownst to anyone, he'd been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, and he opted to spend time with his family 
rather than try to rehabilitate his injuries and find his swing. Since then, things have only gone further downhill. Tolls was arrested in 2020 for sleeping behind a Florida airport and continues to battle his issues far away from the spotlight. But the Dodgers haven't let him go. Last year, they renewed his contract so he could maintain access to mental health services. In a sport overflowing with ruthlessness, with bad publicity, there's still room for some organizational empathy. And with a payroll as high as the Dodgers, I think it's incredibly admirable that they've still carved out a slice of kindness to help Andrew Tolls in uh, any way they can. But that was really nice. I must commend Delaney Dennis, an 11-year-old from Tampa, Florida. He is not just an 11-year-old, but he is an 11-year-old animal advocate that has raised a whopping $61,000 through a lemonade stand. I'm not joking with you. He's the founder of a lemonade stand that, since 2019, has raised more than $60,000 for local animal rescues in the Tampa Bay area. He said, I believe that somewhere out there, animals have a forever home. If you buy a lemonade, you can help the animals. He came up with the idea to sell lemonade to raise money for animals at the age of seven. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. I miss, I assumed Delaney was a boy's name. It, it, it's a girl's name, so I apologize. I see it's a she. Sorry about that. I uh, Sometimes my I, I write these notes so hastily that I uh, don't take note of the appropriate gender. Well. Uh, even more commendable for young Delaney Davis. So, Dennis, Delaney Dennis. I didn't mean to misname her and misgender her. Apologies all around. Boy, this is some commendation she got. It's one I wish she uh, she just as soon send back. I want to commend um, an off-duty pilot who did something extraordinary. A pilot from another airline helped land a Southwest flight after the captain on that flight fell ill. He helped land the Southwest Airlines flight that left early Wednesday from Las Vegas after its captain became incapacitated and required medical attention. According to the airline and radio traffic data, this surprised a lot of the passengers that were on board who had no clue that a pilot had fallen ill. See, what happened was this. Southwest Flight 6013. Isn't this like the the plot to the movie Airplane? And to some extent, even Airport, but really more Airplane. That's one of the few movies, by the way, where the parody is actually better than the movie that's parody. Southwest Flight 6013 had taken off just after 6.30 in the morning, bound for Columbus, Ohio, according to the flight tracking uh, site Flight Aware. While it was airborne, one of its pilots needed medical attention. We don't know the details of his health issue, but it was serious. So in radio traffic archived by the website LiveATC, 
a person says the captain had started to feel stomach pain and then fainted or became incapacitated about five minutes later. This really is the movie Airplane. The person says the captain came back around 60 seconds later and was being looked after in the back of the plane. We need to get him in an ambulance immediately, the person says. Las Vegas resident Diane McGlinchey, who was on the flight with her husband, said she didn't notice any panic when crew members initially went on the plane's PA system to ask whether medical personnel were on board. A passenger sitting up front, who said she was a nurse, put on her call light to help. She said she and her husband had been in the back of the plane and didn't notice it was the pilot who needed aid, but said she knew the ill person was with the nurse in her row. The crew calmly just would give us an update saying we're going to go back to Las Vegas. We have a medical emergency. Meanwhile, a credentialed pilot from another airline was on board as a passenger, entered the flight deck and assisted with radio communication as the second Southwest pilot flew the aircraft. I mean, I think this is really impressive. Uh, We don't have the other pilot's name. Otherwise, I would give him a commendation by name. But uh, I think that's great. Really great job on the part of the crew as well, not panicking the passengers. I mean, can you imagine if if the passengers would have known that the pilot has passed out and is in dire need of an ambulance while he's flying the plane? Liable to make at least somebody on that plane go crazy. So hats off to everybody involved. I want to give a commendation to Laxman Narasmus. I don't know how to pronounce this name. The new CEO of Starbucks, Laxman Narasimhan. I'm going to go with that, Narasimhan. He's doing something very interesting. He is going to start pulling in shifts as a barista. I love this. So uh, this is similar to what the new, this is like a a little bit like the undercover boss era. I mentioned how the new chairman or or the new, uh, the chairman of the taxi and limousine commission in New York City is going to be driving a cab. Well, this guy's doing the same thing. He's going to be going and working as a barista. He's going to earn his barista certification, which requires 40 hours of training in stores. And he's actually going to be working. So you go to a Starbucks, the next guy pouring you your coffee could be the CEO of the company. So be nice to them. Tip well. But uh, I love this. You know, at our company, uh, John Katsimatidis knows what it's like to do what I do. Because he's a talk show host as well. He's doing what I do every day. I think this is great. I think when you're the boss, I think it's a wonderful thing to get down there in the trenches and do what um, what sort of those of us that are in the the lower echelons of the of the chain are doing. Uh, years ago, yeah, I guess now it's two and a half years ago. Our president, Chad Lopez, we didn't have a program director. We didn't have a uh, a phone screener. So he said to the program director at the time, not the person who's there now, but somebody else, said to the program director at the time, Frank should have a phone screener. Can you get someone tonight? And the program director says, I'm going to try. And he says, all right, well, if you can't get someone to come in tonight, 
I will come in and do the phone screening. And you know what he did? Turned out not to be a very good phone screener, but it did give him an appreciation for what it's like to do what we do, deal with crazy callers who want to curse at you and uh, deal with callers that uh, refuse to turn their radio down. So um, I'm all for this. I wish the boss at every company would do something like this. I want to commend a good Samaritan in Colorado who scaled a three-story building to rescue a neighbor who was suffering an asthma attack during a fire last Saturday. This is tremendous. Uh, Dewey Parker says the neighbor was all alone in his apartment and he saw someone in trouble. His adrenaline just took over. We saw the fire going on and noticed a guy on the third floor was having a hard time breathing. He had an inhaler in his hand, couldn't even stand up. Somebody else told the EMTs, and they went up, but the door was locked. He needed a hand. So he just, he decided to scale up to the third floor off the balconies and unlock the door. He was able to reach. He said it was scary. I mean, imagine that. It's tough to scale a three-story building as it is. Imagine doing it while it's on fire. Oh, my goodness. This guy's a real hero. I hope he gets the keys to the city or, or something. So, um, Dewey Parker, you are a hero, and I do commend you. Similarly, I want to commend the best super, the best building super in America, and that's Chris Crouch of Brooklyn. Um, this building super in a building that was on fire, very similar to the other story. He leapt into action and saved three young children from a burning third-floor apartment in Brooklyn on Friday. I mean, how cool is this? He told the New York Post he heard a whoosh of flames burst through the windows of the East New York apartment around noon, followed by a man frantically screaming, screaming, help. We kicked the door open and tried to go up the stairs, but there was too much stuff blocking the stairs. Crouch, who was in the backyard when the blaze began, teamed up with another man from the neighborhood to save the youngsters. He got up to the second floor window and had the tot's dad hand the kids down from the third floor. Wow. Thankfully, the children were all okay. And the dad wanted to throw the kids out the window. Everyone yelled, don't throw them. If he threw them, you're going to end up with a dead baby. I mean... This isn't extraordinary. The parents have eight kids. Four of them were in the building while the rest were at school at the time of the fire. And the ones who had to be rescued were ages 10 months, three years old, and four years old. This building super is a real hero. You know, so often, you know, I got the question, and and it's, I don't want to say it's haunted me, but I've thought about it ever since. I got the question on Ask Frank Anything maybe a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. If the bill, if the house is on fire and you can only save Rachel, your son, who are you saving? And I hate to envision a scenario like that, but um, you know, you hear that and you think, oh, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. Well, you listen to the two stories that I just told you about. These things do happen, and it's a time for real life heroes to uh, to rise to their occasion as Chris Crouch did and as Dewey Parker did.
I want to commend a Nebraska-based coffee chain by the name of Scooters, which is based in Omaha, Nebraska. They have broken a Guinness World Record by baking the world's largest cake ball. That's right. They have assembled an 848-pound cake ball in celebration of the 25th anniversary. Scooter's Coffee in Omaha. Officials said the uh, attempted Guinness World Record, the, they attempted the Guinness World Record to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the chain's founding in Bellevue. The resulting cake ball weighed in at 848 pounds, beating the record of 628 pounds set by England's Sheffield Wednesday Football Club back in 2017. I wonder how it tastes. You have to think they're taking some liberties with measurements and things like that. I'd still be curious to try it. Imagine all the people that could feed. I wonder what they're going to do with it. Is it going to stay permanently on display somewhere? Or they're going to take all the homeless people in Nebraska and say, Hey, let them eat cake ball. I want to commend the state of Ohio, the Buckeye State, first in flight. Apparently... It has been ranked by The Motley Fool, the website, as the best state for retirees in 2023. I have to say, this did surprise me because I've read studies like this before, and they they almost always pick Florida as the best state to retire. And there are some things that are often associated with great places to retire. Warm weather, lots to do, access to good health care, and those were all taken into account But those are only a few of the things that retirees look at when deciding where to live. Housing costs is one of the main factors, which isn't surprising given how much home values and mortgage rates and rent prices have increased in recent years. So they looked at a whole bunch of factors, including quality of life, housing costs, health care quality, crime rate, and health care cost. And interestingly, if you take all these into account, Ohio is the number one state to retire in 2023. In most categories, Ohio ranks near the middle of the pack. It's 24th when it comes to state and local taxes, 19th when it comes to violent crime rates, 28th in health care, 26th in average temperature. However, Ohio excels tremendously in one area. Well, a few areas, but in cost of living. It has the eighth lowest home values in the United States, and the overall cost of living index in Ohio is the seventh lowest. In a nutshell, Ohio is, according to The Motley Fool, a well-rounded retirement destination at a bargain price. I have been to Ohio, and I had a good time there. I liked it. I visited James James Garfield's uh, house where he lived. And I believe he's buried there as well. So his death mask bought a mug, which my wife broke, which thankfully Margaret Katzmatidis replaced, which I then broke again, which I think then Ellen replaced. And um, uh, although Ohio was number one overall, if you're curious about the states that did well in other areas, quality of life, the number one state was a tie between Hawaii and Massachusetts, affordability, West Virginia, Cost of living, Mississippi, health care, Minnesota, crime rate, Maine, low taxes, Alaska, and weather, no surprise here, Hawaii. And um, I have to commend 
Flash Shelton. Flash Shelton has outsquatted the squatters. A handyman was able to get revenge on squatters who moved into his mother's house by showing up with guns and squatting there himself. So he posted a video about his success in removing the squatters from his mom's home in less than a day. He said if they could take a house, then I could take a house. Shelton, who is a member of the United Handyman Association, said they're the squatter and they have rights. Well, then, if I become the squatter on the squatter, then I should have rights, right? He posted a video about his experience removing the squatters from his mom's home. It's really something to watch. You could just type in Flash Shelton and it comes right up. In fact, I'm going to post it on my Facebook uh, page in a minute at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. More than 13,000 people have commented on his video since he posted. I say good for this guy. According to Shelton, several months ago, a family of squatters broke into his mother's vacant home and began living there. He said his dad had recently passed away and they put the home up for rent since his mother couldn't live there alone. And a woman who told Shelton she was a prison guard asked to rent the home, but he refused as she said she had no money or credit. But that didn't stop her. As he later learned, a truckload of belongings had been brought to the house. House, She said that it was delivered by accident and she was getting rid of it. But that was a lie. Shelton later found out from friends and realtors that the house was full of people and furniture. He called the, the police and the police were not helpful. They basically said, you know, I'm sorry, but we can't enter the house. And it looks like they're living there, so you need to go through the courts. So he said he was unfamiliar with squatters' right stories. But he didn't know he wouldn't have to deal with the situation personally. And meaning he was familiar with squatters' rights, but he didn't know he would have to deal with this personally. So he decided to become a squatter himself. And it worked. And then finally, I want to give a very special commendation to not only my um, wife, Rachel, who's celebrating her birthday today. But to my Aunt Madeline, who is also celebrating her birthday today, and uh, she happens to be my godmother as well. So she and I have always been very close since the time that I was born. And uh, the only thing that uh, that I regret is that I don't get to see her more because she lives in Pennsylvania. But I'm looking forward to seeing her on Good Friday. I am going to be off on Good Friday, by the way, uh, because I will be making the trip out to uh, to Pennsylvania. All right. Uh, That concludes this week's edition of Commendations. If there's anybody that you want to comment on, anything you want to say, in light of the commendations that I just brought to your attention, you're welcome to call me, 800-848-9222, This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. In the LBC, it's kind of hard being Snoop D-O-double-G, but I somehow, someway, keep coming up with funky-ass hits like every single day. May I 
kick a little something for the G's and make a few beats yeah. as I breeze through. Two in the morning and the party still jumping cause my mama ain't home. I got some freaks in the living room getting it on and they ain't leaving till six in the, six morning. In the morning. So what you gonna do? Hmm. I got a pocket full of rubbers and my homeboys do too. This is so Snoop Dogg. Is he still called Snoop Dogg? This guy changed his names the way most people change their socks. He was, um, initially he was Snoop Doggy Dog. Then I think he became Snoop Dogg. Then I think he became Snoop Lion. Then I think for a time he was simply Snoop. But now I think he's back to Snoop Dogg. So uh, I'm not sure what his current name status is. But um, it might be Snoopy by now, for all I know. But this is uh, another birthday Brunt for Music selection by my wife, Rachel. I was surprised this made the list because... Unlike a lot of the other songs that we've been playing tonight, those are all songs I've heard her play around the house, or this morning, and I've never heard her play this one. Never heard her play this one. Well, you know, there's all sorts of things that I'm learning about her, just as you are, right? 800-848-9222. Ralph is in New Jersey. Ralph, thanks for patiently holding. Okay. Yeah, uh, I want to mention about the banking situation. And ask this question, okay? Uh, you know, what responsibility does Biden bear on this, being that the factor driving this banking situation uh, right now in the country is driven by the uh, inflation, Biden inflation, okay? This I get from uh, Larry Kudlow, his analysis on that. Uh, and By the way, if you can make and, uh, out Lapa. what Ralph is saying uh, I, I without have, an interpreter, chances are pretty good you qualify for him. citizenship yeah, in the is Philippines. Is that possible, frankly, to have Art Lapper on your show uh, and that for Henry Kissinger too, to talk about China? Uh, maybe, maybe. You know, uh, uh, Art Laffer <laughs> is a regular on the Larry Kudlow show, and uh, I think that um, uh, I'd love to interview him. Uh, I, I honestly, I don't put that much credibility in his hallmark theory, which is the the Laffer curve. But he's certainly a bright guy, and I've enjoyed his conversations with uh, with Larry over the years. But I would, uh, I'll reach out to him. That's the best I can do. Uh, I don't know if he's okay. willing to come out what? this late, but I'll try. What, what what about Dr. Henry Kissinger? If, if you have to go to uh, where he lives in Connecticut to do the interview, uh, that would be fine with you, is it? Uh, I beg your pardon? Dr. Henry Kissinger, is it possible for you to to interview Dr. Henry Kissinger? I, you know, about I, again, I tried, a couple, I tried a couple of times. Uh, I'd like to talk with him about a number of things, especially now that he's, you know, he's... About China. Yeah, well, a, a, well, including and the Ukraine situation, which is even more pressing. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ralph. I know John Katsimatidis interviewed him. I've not, I don't know if I've ever tried to uh, to reach out to uh, Henry Kissinger. All right, um, but you remember the old school blockbuster video commercials? You know, remember a lot of them would end with um, you know with something like this. And I, I really loved video stores. Then um, I liked like old school mom and pop video stores because, like them, just for the same reasons that I prefer going to a local coffee shop instead of going to Starbucks, I preferred um, that I preferred, you know, smaller video stores. Same thing. I love that system where you look around, see what tape you want to rent. 
And then you go and you tell them, all right, it's number M16. And then they bring out this big book. You got to look at the book. Then they go and pick this tape out. And then they go and find the tape. And then they go and bring it to you. You get a membership card that, you know, it's even more valuable to your library card. Back then, videotapes, VHS videotapes went for about $85. Can you imagine? $85. I remember one time... When I was a little boy, I um, I don't know how old I was. I, I might have been 18. Hopefully not. But I wanted – we went to the video store. My mom and I went to the video store. It's one of these local video stores. And I I don't remember which tape it was. I think I do, but I don't want to – I don't want to say. But I wanted so badly to purchase a tape, Okay. And my mom said, oh, it's not for sale. You can only rent it. We're going to rent it. And you can watch it. And if you want, we can rent it again. Very reasonable. Try reasoning with probably I was five or six years old. I don't remember. And try reasoning with a, an irascible five or six-year-old who at the time was an only child and is used to getting his way. I must have been six because my parents were divorced, right? So um, I was I was six. And... Ultimately, I started throwing a fit in the video store. And I'm not proud of this, obviously, but, you know, six years old. And they they were so persuaded by my tears at the video store that they agreed to sell my mom the tape for wholesale price. And the price was $85. You can believe that. Now, I can promise you, if Carmine does that with me at five or six years old... Uh, <laughs> I'm not buying him that. Uh, I'm not buying him that videotape. Uh, my mother was on, on a, was either a much better parent or a much worse parent than uh, than I than I plan on being. But so be it. But the point is, a lot of those uh, small mom and pop stores got put out of business by the super video store. I remember then then there was Palma Video or Palmer Video, and then there was uh, some other small. Video store chains like West Coast Video is big, which I also really like. I loved all these video stores. I'd spend hours in there just looking around, looking at all the tapes. And then Blockbuster. Blockbuster started a revolution in video rentals. Blockbuster became the only game in town. It took over everything. Blockbuster, Blockbuster, Blockbuster. And these ads, which when they first started airing in 1989. I've never seen 10,000 tapes in one store. There's so much kid stuff. And I can keep them for three evenings. Now this is a video store. Ordinary video stores don't even come close to Blockbuster Video. You've just got to see it to know what we mean. Wow. 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 What a difference. Blockbuster Video. Come discover the Blockbuster difference. Well, those ads were fringe and niche in 1989. By 1995, 1996, forget about it. I don't know a community in America that didn't have a blockbuster video. You know how many there are today? One. One. And uh, there's a terrific documentary about this. And uh, it's called, I think, The Last Blockbuster. 
And I interviewed Taylor Morden three years ago on this program about why he wanted to make a documentary of all the things you can make a movie about. Why make it about the last blockbuster video? This is what he said at the time. Well, I had moved here back to Oregon from the East Coast and uh, you know, driving around this small town, I would see this sign that said blockbuster video. You know, it's you see them all over the country, but usually it's an empty, abandoned store and they couldn't afford to take the sign down. Um, so I thought nothing of it. But after a few months of driving by the sign, for whatever reason, I felt compelled to stop and poke my head in the store. And what I found, this was in 2017, was a fully functional blockbuster video that was open that had people in there renting movies. And it just, it seemed like nobody had given them the memo that blockbuster had closed down. So my curiosity was going crazy. Like who is renting a DVD in the Netflix era? So now it went from 9,000 locations to one. Imagine that. And that's one of my favorite subjects to explore is chains that used to be everywhere. Now there's just one or two, a handful. We've done that as a topic before. I won't, I won't put you through that again. But uh, there's a long list of chains that used to be everywhere. And now uh, they are just, you know, Howard Johnson's, same thing. In the 60s and the 70s and the 80s even, Howard Johnson's was everywhere. The restaurant, not the hotel chain. Now there's one, I believe. or That might have even just closed, but. Now, there has been an update to the Blockbuster Video website. And this has fueled speculation among the movie rental chain's fans about a potential comeback. According to the Internet Archive, the website was initially updated in late July 2022 to feature the Blockbuster logo and a message that said... We're working on rewinding your movie. It also featured a pop-up GIF of actor Wayne Knight that was Newman on Seinfeld. An update to the page in August featured a GIF of John Travolta from Pulp Fiction superimposed over an aisle of movie rentals at a Blockbuster. The latest update to the Blockbuster website features the brand's logo and a message stating, ready for this, please be kind while we rewind. So a lot of folks are wondering, is Blockbuster coming back? I think this is a pretty good indication. Please be kind while we rewind. Rewind being a throwback to the days of 9,000 chains. I would love to see it make something of a comeback. Even if it doesn't go back to the era of 9,000 stores, but uh, there are no more video stores. It'd be so much fun to have one. Love it. You know, I had a mom and pop store, video store. I didn't my... know you were in the video rental business. No, 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 no. In my neighborhood, oh. I was going to say. Until about 2017. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's and I used to say, who's going in and buying these videos? But it was right across the street from an adult community. Oh. And I thought, oh, well, the older people are going and getting videos. So what happened? Why did it close? Well, like how they all closed. Eventually, I'm sure nobody was going yeah. in there as streaming got more more popular because they were still people would still get DVDs. So I think that's why they were able to stay. Right. And they did video games. Well, and, and that last blockbuster, like that. that last blockbuster in Oregon, they rent DVDs as well. Right. So I'm not, I'm imagining if they come back, they'll 
primarily traffic in the DVD business. I would think the DVDs and the Blu-rays right. um, is what they would they would have to. There's nothing, what other medium is there besides that? And I guess maybe they'll sell other things besides food. I don't I don't know what else. To do. But I remember, yeah, it was Blockbuster and Hollywood Video. Hollywood the, Video, that's right. I never spent yeah. much time in there. Yeah, I went to one because when I first when we first moved down to, to, to Brick, that's where there was a Hollywood Video very close by. Um, and I remember doing the, the commercial for Hollywood Video with Don LaFontaine, the announcer, and he'd come up from under the counter. And oh, go, yeah. Don, I remember that too. That's funny. Describe this movie. And he'd do the whole thing and he'd go, and he'd just grumble at the guy. So, and, I, and in the beginning of video stores, before Blockbuster came in, there was a point in time when you had to choose between did you want to rent a Betamax or, or did a you VHS. Want to rent that's a right. VHS. I remember that. And um, that was until. Until um, Blockbuster came in and just wiped everything away, and VHS took over, and that was the end of it. And, yeah, I do remember that. People always find are very surprised that VHS tapes were like $85, considering that DVDs and Blu-rays were like 13 bucks. So you go to like the $2 bin now, the $5 bin. That I remember I wanted to buy, not long after it was in the movie theater and it was on VHS, the Doors movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's and it a great was like picture. $75. And I was yeah. like, $75? Oh, yeah. Because movies that were blockbusters, those VHS tapes would be like $20. But some movie that you just wanted to have because right. you liked it right. was $75, $85, $100. Right. That was the standard uh, yeah. wholesale price at the time. Yes, absolutely. All right. 800-848-9222. I'm rooting for a blockbuster comeback. I don't know about you. Joe in Queens, what's on your mind? Yeah, how you doing, Frank? A uh, couple of things. Uh, very interesting show tonight. Thank you. Uh, your uh, your wife should and your aunt should look at the New York Post today's birthday horoscope. That's always fun. Okay, that's uh, a good suggestion. Yeah. Actually, I will text them both that right now. Yeah. Uh, on the squatters, I wonder if that does happen in some countries uh, where uh, you know. Well, that's kind of nightmarish. Imagine waking up and all of a sudden there's like five other people in sleeping bags around you. I mean, what do you think? That's, that's crazy, Frank. Oh, um, it's, uh, it's a nightmare. I can't imagine it. It's terrible. I mean, especially if you're used to space. I mean, people want, you know, if you're used to like Blockbuster. was Now, the Blockbuster thing... Uh, I, I guess that's, is it nostalgia, you think? Is that what it is? Like I, I do. Yeah, I think it's largely, uh, I, I, I don't think our show had anything to do with it, but I think the popularity of that documentary, The Last Blockbuster, I think maybe Blockbuster and the folks that own Blockbuster now have been convinced that there's still some interest in Blockbuster as a brand number one, and block and the Blockbuster experience number two. So I uh, I do think that's a big part of it. I mean, look, you've seen a tremendous comeback of VHS tapes and uh, not VHS tapes, excuse me, vinyl records. You've seen a little bit of a comeback of audio cassette tapes, and I can uh, certainly see a situation where I don't see VHS coming back. But I could see Blockbuster and the Blockbuster experience through DVDs being a very real experience for a lot of people. Well, it was kind of fun to go to the store exactly. as a place to go. You know, it was like it was like going 
the the one I went to was next to a Dunkin' Donuts, so I would kind of go to both. Yeah, well, I thank you, Joe. Um, yeah, the Blockbuster that I went to, it had a whole bunch of stores over there. There was a bagel store, there was McDonald's, there was, um, you know, there's a there was a deli, there was a, a fish store, a pizzeria. It was fun, you know. It's a standard kind of shopping center. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Original Rick is in New Jersey. Hello, Rick. Yes. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, just a quick question. Uh, my mother left me when she passed away. Eight hundred videotapes. Wow. Do you have Do you have any suggestion? What I can, you know, everyone says throw them out, and it's like I have a hard time throwing away eight hundred of anything. It, it, can is there any charitable organization that can use these? I mean, for maybe. Uh, uh, demonstration purposes, making demo tapes. I mean, what can I just don't want to throw away eight hundred tapes, but it looks like I might have to. Well, um, look, um, the that's tough, right? And and if you we had had this conversation fifteen years ago, I would have said donate them to the the New York Public Library. But right. I don't. I don't even think the New York Public Library offers VHS tapes anymore. So you have a couple of options. One, you can. Um, you can go to a thrift store and donate them to a thrift store. Most thrift stores will happily accept donations of VHS tapes. Now, will they take 800? I don't know, but I think they might. Yeah, but, but they're already recorded on. Yeah, I understand. Not black. Oh, okay, okay. Right. Um, uh, thrift store, right. They, use, they sell used things. I'm right. sorry, right. And then um, the other thing, uh, we, we did an interview a while ago with a uh, a fella that has these, I don't know if you remember the interview, but he was setting up, I don't know if you've seen in different communities, they have these little libraries in different yeah. neighborhoods. And yeah. he sets up these th- same things for VHS tapes. He calls them free blockbuster libraries. So ah. you, you could start one of these in your neighborhood. And obviously you call the show so frequently, we can give it a plug. And I think anybody, you know, anybody in that municipality um, will be interested in it. They'll hear us talk about it on our show, and maybe they'll go and bring some tapes of their own and borrow some of those tapes. When you say those libraries, you mean those little things where it says, like, take one, give one? Yes, just, yes. So take... this guy took uh-huh. that same concept, uh, and he he brought it to VHS tapes oh, as well. well. All right, all right. That's an, that's an idea. Yeah. It's something that I just hate just throwing them away. Yeah, you know? no, he's got a whole, um, you know, he's got a whole uh, a whole situation. He's got a whole um, website and a, a whole kit that you can purchase about it. In fact, uh, Alex uh, Barnard, um, uh, he he cut that, uh, that uh, cut that I did with um, – with this fella before, and Alex, if you're listening to me, put it back in our folder, and I'll play. Uh, I'll play Rick a piece of um, uh, audio from that that interview that we did a, a year or so ago. But I thought it was really interesting. I wanted to do one of these in front of our house, but my wife uh, vetoed that one. And then I tr- <laughs> I tried to get my city councilman to start one in at his office. But he didn't. He didn't have any interest um, in in doing so. Uh, but uh, I think it's really interesting. It's. Uh, I believe the website is freeblockbuster dot com or freeblockbuster dot org, and uh, you can check it out. Yeah, Hello, it's freeblockbuster dot so org. Okay, freeblockbuster. Okay. Yeah, check it out. It's pretty cool. It's a nonprofit organization that promotes these neighborhood 
movie exchanges. As, as of now, there's over um, 160 of them around the country, maybe more. And you could be 161. Here is uh, Brian Morrison uh, talking about it. Listen to this, uh, Explain Rick. to people what it is that you are doing. What is Free Blockbuster? What spurred your idea for this? How does this whole enterprise work? Sure. Of course, we were inspired by little free libraries. I think a lot of people know about those. They're, they're little kiosks or huts or even shelves uh, in neighborhoods or outside of stores or homes where you can take a book, leave a book. Um, and we, you know, just like you, uh, I had a bunch of tapes sitting around, but I wasn't looking at that much. And I thought, well, what else, what else can we do with these? Well, we can take a movie, leave a movie. So let's do what, what they taught us to do in school. You know, let's share. And, uh, and that all, that, that's sort of where the idea was, came from. So that's that, Rick. Uh, what do you think? I think that's pretty cool. And in fact, I might go to like some of these consignment stores or something and say, can we set something outside? Your, there you go. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a great idea. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate Thank that. You. Thank you. All right. 800 848 Seven open lines if you want to comment. Uh, and uh, we'll uh, cover a wide variety of other things. Uh, there's a ton of AI news. And uh, we're going to get to it as uh, as as much as we as as we can. I feel like there's a ton of AI news every day. We're going to get to as much of it as we can uh, momentarily. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You know, I um, I'm not a big concert goer, but I did go to a Maroon Five concert, and I think they performed this song, and they were fine. It was at Madison Square Garden. The woman I was dating at the time was a huge Maroon Five fan, and it we um, we had a great time. I mean, I was happy that she was happy. We went out to dinner before. I think it was for her birthday or something, but. I would never go again. I mean, with without her, or unless I was taking someone there. So I'm just not a concert guy. I just it's not for me. I have been to concerts that I've enjoyed. Uh, I was at a Neil Sedaka concert that I loved. I was at a couple of concerts for Super Diamond that I had a decent time at. It's just it's not the way that I'd like to spend a couple hours at all. And. It's funny. Um, why are we playing this song? Was this a request from me, or uh, or is this? Uh, are you playing this for some reason? I just played. It. I just thought it felt like with the theme of 
thought maybe Rachel would like this song. Oh, maybe she does. Yeah, she likes Maroon 5, all right. Thank you uh, for, for thinking of her. So then, anyway, um, then I, I, um, I get a message from a friend of mine to be sure to, to keep my schedule free on April 14th. And I, I, he wouldn't tell me what it's for. So I had a hunch at what it was for. And he has, still hasn't told me. But he tells me, uh, just be free on April 14th. And I go and um, look, and now I'm almost certain I know what it's about. He tells me that, uh, well, he doesn't tell me anything. But I see that there's a Bruce Springsteen concert that night in the New York, New Jersey area. And he has been one of these guys that has been saying to me for literally years that you need to experience Bruce Springsteen in concert form, and then that'll make you, you, then you'll get it. And that's what everybody has said to me. Years ago, uh, two friends of mine who, again, two separate friends, other people, devoted, longtime Bruce Springsteen fans, they... Um, did the same thing. They got me Springsteen tickets for my birthday. And I said, you know, I really don't want to go. I I really just prefer not to. They said, no, you don't understand. It's going to be a major media event. I passed on. Now, I will go to this concert because this is a close friend and he's really into it, if that's what we're doing. But, you know, it's not not high on my list of things to do. Um, But Ed Koch, back in the 80s, this is when he was mayor, talked about Bruce Springsteen and what it was like to see him in person. Well, I know, having listened uh, to uh, Bruce uh, Springsteen on uh, a number of occasions, he doesn't have the greatest voice. He has a good voice, but not a uh, great voice. But he has enormous electricity, so that he dominates uh, the uh, stage. And, of course, uh, the uh, songs uh, that he uh, sings are very powerful. And uh, I just happen to like him. There you go. I just happen to like him. Maybe that'll be me. Uh, 800-848-9222. Don is in New Jersey. Hello, Don. Hey, uh, I called Bo Snurdly about this, but he didn't have an answer for it. I'm wondering if you do. Um, about the grand jury in New York uh, City uh, trying Trump, uh, do you know what their demographics are in the jury? No. Because I would think they would be stacked against Trump. Well, um, a couple of things to keep in mind. So, no, nobody knows the uh, the the identity of the the grand jurors uh, at this point. We will after it's over, but oh, well, at least we'll know some of them. But a couple of things to keep in mind with the grand jury. They and I've been a grand juror in a, in a state court, and the thing to keep in mind is they don't screen jurors for bias. They take. The I believe it's uh, 18 people. They take the first 18 people that are in the the fishbowl. So um, if you are a campaign contributor to Donald Trump or to uh, Joe Biden, that doesn't disqualify. Nothing disqualifies you. They don't screen you for bias or if you know the people involved or anything like that. They they just take the first 18 people. And that's one of the reasons Judge Saul Wachler um, opposed grand juries. The only the other thing is. They don't have to be unanimous. It just has to be a majority. 
So I would think coming out of Manhattan, at least a majority of them probably would not be Trump supporters, to say the least. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I am Frank Morano. Well, I, what is happening in the world of AI is just staggering. Uh, a while ago, we first started playing around with uh, AI. Obviously, stands for artificial intelligence. We started playing around with uh, AI art. Then we started uh, playing around with the chat GPT, which is a text generator. That was the previous version. uh, Well, the current version, 3.5. And now version four of this is out. And they are saying that this is a game changer. An absolute game changer. The enormity of the AI revolution is becoming clearer by the day. Every day, I get end up with a stack of 10 to 12 articles having to do with just AI. And that's just the new stuff that day. It's every day. We could do an AI segment every day and still not run out of content. Uh, And there's ethical implications, there's legal implications, there's economic implications. Uh, Leading thinkers are now debating whether it's bigger than the invention of the printing press or the splitting of the atom. Bill Gates, who knows a thing or two about new eras, wrote last week that artificial intelligence and the sudden proliferation of these chatbots is as revolutionary as mobile phones and the Internet. Here's a snapshot um, of a little bit about what's happening. So companies are seeking growth, nations are seeking power, individuals are seeking advancement, and everyone in this camp aims to use AI in some capacity to try to win. Therefore, we definitely need to be careful. Last week in the New York Times, Tom Friedman, in a column called Our New Promethean Moment, wrote that he could barely sleep after getting a demo of GPT-4 
the announced new version of ChatGPT. He said, we're entering one of those moments in history when certain new tools, ways of thinking, or energy sources are introduced that are such a departure and advance on what existed before that you have to change everything. How you create, how you compete, how you can collaborate, how you work, how you learn, how you govern, and yes, how you cheat, how you commit crimes, and how you fight wars. So Friedman who I realize doesn't always have the best track record of being right, but, you know, it's something. Friedman's analogies, the invention of the printing press, the scientific revolution, the agricultural revolution combined with the industrial revolution, the nuclear power revolution, personal computing and the Internet, and now this moment. I have to say, I think these guys are right. I am in awe of what AI can do already. We played you some clips of that AI DJ. How soon until there are AI talk show hosts that program directors or station managers can program to talk about whatever they want, right? Um, I think it's fascinating. So let's talk about the current version of chat GPT 3.5. I'll tell you what I just did in the last minute as I was talking to you. I said, um, because, you know, I'm just trying to think of a recent author we had on and last week at this time or last week, this day we had on John Katsimatidis who wrote a book. So I said, write a book review for John Katsimatidis new book. How far do you want to go in the form of a poem? And this is what it came up with. In How Far Do You Want to Go, John Katsimatidis shares what he knows. A common-sense billionaire. His lessons are worth taking to heart, I swear. He started out with nothing but dreams, and through hard work, he gained the means. To build an empire brick by brick, now his story's a blueprint for those who seek. His words are wise, his voice sincere, each chapter filled with insight crystal clear. He talks of business, politics, and more, and all that he's learned from a life well-lived before. He tells us to never stop learning, to keep our eyes on the prize undeterred, to have faith in ourselves and in our team, and to never, ever give up on our dreams. This book is a gem, a must-read for all, who aspire to succeed and never fall. With John's guidance, we'll surely thrive and reach the stars with each step we strive. So if you're looking for inspiration or just some good old-fashioned motivation, How Far Do You Want to Go is the book for you filled with lessons that will help you see it through. Now, that's in the form of a conventional poem. So I said the same prompt, but this time, that that took two seconds to write. Two seconds. It's not bad for two seconds. And this is the old version of ChatGPT. The new version is supposed to be much, much better. I said, write me, I gave the same prompt, write me a book review in the form of a poem, this time in the style of Edgar Allan Poe. And this is what it came up with. In the pages of How Far Do You Want to Go, John Katsimatidis doth bestow lessons aplenty, sage advice for those seeking to succeed and rise The common sense of this billionaire is a beacon shining bright and fair. His words doth guide 
is wisdom sound. With each page turned, new insights are found. The journey he hath undertaken is a tale that leaves one quite shaken. From humble beginnings he rose up high, a story that doth make one sigh. The lessons learned he doth impart with candor and with open heart. The path to riches and success is paved with toil and nothing less. His words doth echo deep and grave. Believe in yourself and be brave, for with hard work and a clear goal, one's aspirations can be made whole. How far do you want to go? Is a book that doth inspire so. If thou art seeking guidance true, then this book I highly recommend to you. In the style of Poe, I end my verse with admiration for this billionaire so diverse. His lessons learned doth light the way to success for those who doth obey. That took one and a half seconds to create. While I've been sitting here talking, I, I just typed that and it created. And I'll do one last one just so you could see how quickly it just does itself. So I said, I just typed, write a book review for John Casamitidi's new book in the form of a limerick. In the form of a limerick. There once was a book by Katsimatidis filled with lessons so very prestigious. He's a billionaire with common sense to share and his advice oh so advantageous. How far do you want to go is the name and in it John shares his climb to fame. With hard work and determination he built an empire, a great sensation. The book's lessons are easy to heed and can help one to surely succeed. From business to politics and more, John's advice is something to adore. So if you're looking for inspiration or just some solid motivation, how far do you want to go is the one, a book that can help you get things done. Now, that's pretty good. And ChatGPT4 is supposed to be a lot better. And it can write longer verses. Now, I guarantee you, you are going to see um, people start writing whole movies. With this, people are already writing, are already writing books with ChatGPT as the co-author. And those are just the ones we know about. I guarantee you there's some books being written that um, that you don't have any idea are written in part by ChatGPT. Some of the ones that I gave it um, as as prompts to write movies or treatments for movies... They were very funny, some of them. Some of them were very good. So uh, we're in a situation now where the Writers Guild of America last week, which is a labor union that represents film and TV writers, they proposed that AI be allowed to help write scripts. The idea arose during routine negotiations between the Writers Guild and the Alliance of Motion Picture and TV Producers, which represents the studios over Writers Bay. And while letting ChatGPT in the writers' room sounds like a job threat, the details of the WGA proposal could ensure that we won't see a robot giving an Oscars speech anytime soon. AI could do some of the work, but get none of the credit. The union tweeted that it considers AI to be merely research material. Well, it's not. I didn't write any of those poems. The AI did. Noting that AI software does not create anything, it generates a regurgitation of what it's fed. Therefore, the Writers Guild proposes uh, 
that AI could be used to help write scripts, but the writer who turns AI-generated text into a show or movie would get the credit and compensation. So creative industries everywhere are discussing what guardrails should be established around using AI to produce content. While the WGA's proposal could set a precedent for materials created with AI, some are wondering what happens when AI gets good enough to write a screenplay without a human co-writer. What does happen? Or let's say there's a writer's strike. What stops the studios or the TV networks from simply turning to AI to write those scripts? And it's not just text. Now Microsoft's Bing search engine and Edge browser are now equipped with an AI-powered image generator. The tool uses OpenAI's DAL-E, D-A-L-L hyphen E. It's supposed to be a combination of Salvador Dali and the robot from that movie, Wally. You get it? Dali. To generate images from text prompts. Now, the rollout reflects how quickly Microsoft has been building on its OpenAI partnership. And since expanding the relationship a couple of months ago, Microsoft has also announced a new AI-powered Bing and Edge browser and announced plans to bring generative AI into Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, and other similar software. Hope. Um, so we, I've been playing around with this, the image creator with, with prompts. And after a few seconds, Bing spits out four images for each prompt. And I think it's really interesting. I I'm just, I just posted one of the latest things that I had to create, which is better. I've had to create this before, but it's Groucho Marx as a robot. So if you want to see it, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. You can see what it did. So this is rewriting all of the rules. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on the uh, on the hopes and fears involved here. Uh, 800-848-9222. A Wharton professor gave AI tools 30 minutes to work on a business project, and the results he described as being superhuman. Superhuman. Um, artificial intelligence presenting new possibilities on how to do all sorts of work. And there's another economist by the name of Brian Kaplan, and he is going to lose his first ever bet after a new AI platform passed an economics exam easily. Kaplan, who's very well regarded, been around a a while, he's made dozens of bets going back to 2007 on topics ranging from the next U.S. president to the price of gas. He's won them all. Won them all. Although he came very close to losing his 2008 bet that no no country would leave the EU before 2020, the, e, the U.K. left the block in January that year. But after watching ChatGPT get a degrade on his economics test three months ago, he bet that no AI – this is three months ago he made this bet – He bet that no AI would get passing grades on five of his six exams before 2029. Then GPT-4 came out and promptly got an A. So Kaplan has not yet conceded the bet but said AI 
enthusiasts have cried wolf for decades. GPT-4 is the wolf. So I think this is really, uh, really interesting. Uh, comment if you like, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. We have uh, wide open lines. And then we'll do the uh, $1,000 minute in just a bit. And again, if you want to see that uh, Groucho Marx robot that uh, that the new Bing image creator created, you can go to my Facebook page at uh, facebook.com slash Fan. Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O fan. All right. Uh, we're on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. Hey, I did see that um, that Twitter is experimenting with with widening the amount of characters that you can put in there. I saw Elon Musk posted something very long. Obviously, he's the head of Twitter. He can do what he wants. But I also saw that other people have been offered this example, this opportunity to write longer tweets. So far, I'm still limited to whatever you're limited to, 219 characters. I'm not sure if that's a good idea to expand Twitter to being limitless. I I, I think that might cause Twitter to lose some of its appeal in all candor. 800-848-9222. Alex is in California. What's on your mind? Yeah, I I wanted to comment about uh, artificial intelligence. I think we should, uh, at the same time that we develop the technology, we should also look into the social impact of AI in the sense that what does it mean to the value of being a human being if a machine exceeds the human being in all intellectual areas? And the second and last comment I wanted to make is uh, there may or may not be a fundamental difference between a AI machine and a human brain. If you go to Google and you type the two words Penrose, P-E-N-R-O-S-E, and consciousness, it will bring up uh, a result indicating that there is some belief that human consciousness is based on a quantum state. So you can't simply produce an artificial life form like an AI machine that makes it, I guess, uh, a living being. Um, So that's what I wanted to say. All right. Well, Alex, I think you raise a number of good points there. So what do you think we should be doing in terms of ethical guardrails, legal guardrails, regulation or whatever? I think uh, if you ask me, and I come from a STEM engineering background, I think we should should immediately fund research looking at the social implications of AI uh, because we did not – we had a similar, we had a kind of a problem that arose as a result of, for example, uh, you know, the, all those cable television channels that people kept saying were so wonderful. Well, when you have thousands of different cable channels, you create a society where people lack a shared unifying experience. Back in the old days when you only had three television uh, uh, broadcast uh, companies, ABC, CBS and NBC, then that kind of forced people to watch the same programs. And and we could argue that the destruction of a unifying experience leads to people who are alienated, and then they then they go out there and do these violent acts. Well, yeah, I, I've actually talked a, a bit about that, Alex, and I think those are all very, very good points. Um, but uh, I think on the whole, and thanks for the call, Alex, I think on the whole, we're better off if you're giving me a choice of three channels or 
essentially limitless entertainment options, even though it is a little splintering in society. You can't go – see, back in the day, you'd be able to go to the water cooler on Monday in the office and everybody had seen Ed Sullivan the night before. Everybody had. And you could make reference to what was on Ed Sullivan. Now there is nothing like that. There is no real unifying experience in American culture. That um, the maybe the possible exception is the Super Bowl. That's the one exception. But other than that, I, I don't think there is. That's a fine point. But if you give me a choice of three channels versus limitless options, I'll take the limitless options. Right? John's in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. I'm uh, I'm all in favor of using AI for creativity. Um, I think, you know, especially today and nowadays, everything is a remake of something else. It's very hard to have an original idea, but I feel that AI can can help with that and it can come up with things you didn't think of, like we would never think of. I just think it'd be dangerous to give AI a body. That's where we got to draw the line because mm. then they'll take over humanity. They'll figure out we're dumb. But yeah, to I, use it as a tool is one thing. To you know, to make a sentient being out of AI is, I, I draw the line there. Well, I can certainly see that, John. You know, I'm not crazy. I would certainly be very opposed to maybe the idea of AI drones, not uh, controlled by a, a human pilot, uh, pilot by a remote control, but something that's solely AI uh, to go out there and um, and shoot who we say are the bad guys. Who's to say that AI won't decide to train its guns on us like in uh, Terminator 2 Judgment Day? Exactly, because we're training the AI to start thinking for itself. It's passing tests. It's doing like that. That's the dangerous part. For for creativity, it's one thing. I think for learning, it shouldn't be done. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, John. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. If you want to comment, hey, I want to give a a shout out to two friends of mine that are that are in the radio business. My friend uh, Mike Gallagher, who's one of the who used to be heard on WABC in New York, he's still on. Um, he's still one of the most listened to radio talk show hosts in the entire country, and he is heard on a couple of affiliates that I'm still heard on. Uh, but uh, he was on AM nine seventy on my friend Arthur Idala's show last week, and of course they end up talking about the hours of of. The radio business and what certain people do at different hours of the day. And um, they end up talking, of all things, of course, about me. Here's uh, Mike Gallagher on uh, the Arthur Idala program on AM 970 in New York. I know we're going far afield, and San Bolino's giving me two more minutes here. But I, I just, I just, I want to address this. What about our friend Frank Morano, who does 1 a.m. till 5 a.m.? What kind of well, life? If you're, if, if you're if you're a peculiar person, if you're an Mar- married with a one year old, by the way, married with, with a one year old. But if anybody could pull that off, it's Frankie Morano. Now, Frank is an eccentric, and I say that with love. I I love him to death. He's one of my favorite people in the world. If you're eccentric, you can pull it off. So if you're a little kooky, it's it's a home run. It's no problem. Frank was made for overnights. I mean, he listen even with the wife and family. I mean, because he, he's a piece of work, and I and I love that well, that guy. With all you know, they've asked him. They've uh, callers have asked him. You know, Frank, if you couldn't have this job, 
you know, what what job would you want? Or or not not if you couldn't if, like what job would you want besides this one? He's like he doesn't even hesitate. He goes none. I've always There's wanted nothing. to be the overnight because he's he's a Joe Franklin, Larry yep. King, you know, kind of guy, and he could mix it yep. up. And- so that was very nice. I appreciate the uh, kind words from both uh, Mike and uh, and Arthur. Even if uh, Mike did make clear how uh, how how peculiar I am. So uh, thank you both. I appreciate that, uh, and thank you to everybody that listens every day and makes what we do possible. All right, I'll tell you what we're going to do momentarily. We're going to give you an opportunity to be the seventh caller to the $1,000 Minute. But first, let me hear from Tom in Hell's Kitchen. Hello, Tom. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, there was a movie about 1970 where two AIs took over the world. They uh, played war games with each other, the American computer and the Soviet computer. And finally, they stopped playing war games, and they got together, and they ended up taking over the world because they had control of all the weapons. Was the name of that film Colossus? The Forbin Project, yeah. Okay, so I never saw it, but it's on my list of films to um, to see. Is that worth seeing? Definitely. It's a, it was a cult movie. Right, I know movie. that. Yeah, it was hard to get it's not for a, a while. Spielberg movie. Right. No, I I know that, and um, and I think going given what we're going through now. I'm starting to wonder if this could be a situation of life imitating art. Yeah, it's the the nuclear weapons were on a hair trigger, so the people came up with these computers to stop nuclear war. But the computers got too smart, and they uh, outwitted the humans. Yeah, it is scary stuff. Uh, We'll see what happens, Tom. Uh, I'm certain I'm at the same time fascinated by this and incredibly nervous. Thank you, Tom. All right. If you want to be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, dial right now. We'll play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is Anti-Hero by Taylor Swift, my son's favorite artist thus far. All right, uh, without further ado, let us give somebody an opportunity to win some money as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. 
Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Uh, let us say hello to Topi in Cape May. Is that right, Topi? Yes, sir. Okay. Hello, Toby. Uh, I love Cape May. My wife and I go there every year. What's your favorite restaurant in Cape May? Uh, I can't tell you because I don't want people to go there and overcrowd it. All right. Well, what but about... I could give you a... Oh, Steve's 47. Okay, Steve's 47. All right. But we see people lining up there already. Uh, so yeah. I would try not to go there today. I've never been there. What, no. kind, of, what kind of food do they serve? Oh, it's it's amazing. Steve's 47. Steve's 47. Is it a newer place, older place? No, it's very old. Really? I'm going to check this out. Uh, Steve's 47. Uh, in, okay, I'm going to check this out. All right. Um, the And I assume you've done the whole, um, you've gone to the World War II lookout tower a bunch of times? Mm-hmm. And the, yeah, uh, I was going to buy one. I was gonna, there was one in Wildwood. I was going to buy it. What, the World War II lookout t- tower that you climbed? Yeah. North Wildwood, yeah, there was a there was another one in Wildwood. Really, they looked out for the submarines. Yes. Did you grow up in Cape May, or you moved there? I grew up in Bayonne. Oh, well, that's something. All right. Well, I, I like Cape May as as well. I'm uh, I'm envious that you uh, that you that you have a house there. You you have a house there? Yes. You rent it North out. Cape May. You rent it out. No, I have a house in North Cape May. Oh, and do you rent the house in North Cape May out? No, I own it. I own my sister owns the house in North Cape May. All right, but does she rent it out? No. Oh, okay. All right. Well, if you decide to rent it, or if she decides to rent it, uh, call me again. Maybe we'll rent from you. Oh, okay? absolutely. Yeah, we're renovating the basement, and it has a. You All right. Know, well, you uh, certainly change your tune there quickly, Toby. All right. You know, have you heard this segment before, Toby? Yes. Okay, so you know what to do, right? All right, I hope you can't do any worse than the guy that called in Friday. And he seemed like a nice guy. So just don't get nervous. Take a half a second and answer the question, even if it seems obvious, okay? I might do worse. No, 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 no. You, you, it, it is impossible to do worse than that guy did, okay? Um, okay. All right. What is your favorite color? Blue. What animal does wool come from? Sheep. The CEO of what social media app testified before Congress last week? Oh, what? Oh, uh, TikTok. Who was the president of the United States during the War of eighteen twelve? The War of eighteen twelve. Eighteen twelve. Yes. Oh, uh, Jackson. Ah, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Jackson was a general, but the president was uh, James Madison. James Madison was the president. I'm sorry. And uh, yeah, it was really, and it's a fascinating war to look at. And, Topi, uh, I'm going to put you on hold. Give Kenneth your information. We're going to send you um, something, a, a magnet, quite frankly. And then uh, maybe oh, I'll see you, you when, the, uh, when I'm down there in Cape May uh, over the summer. But, uh, yeah, the War of 1812 is really fascinating. There's so many good stories about it. But the British really burned down the White House. They invaded this country and burned down the White House. And the, the First Lady at the time, Dolly Madison, who did a lot more than just serve ice cream at the White House, 
She was really heroic. She battled flames while the British were invading, literally. And she made a point to save the Declaration of Independence and to save George Washington's portrait that was hanging up. I mean, that's some first lady. Everybody, everybody always says, oh, I wish we had the kind of president like Bill Pullman and Independence Day that could fight aliens or uh, like Harrison Ford in um, Air Force One that can beat up uh, terrorists. I wish we had a first lady like Dolly Madison that could nothing against Jill Biden or any other first lady, but that could exercise some heroism now and again. Um, so that's uh, that's that. Hey, I did want to mention this. Reese Witherspoon and her husband, Jim Toth, are uh, getting a divorce. And I'm sorry to see this. And I usually don't like to comment on other people's divorces, be, especially even celebrities. I, I don't know why when a celebrity goes through a divorce, which I, I know is a very difficult thing. I don't know why people assume it's okay to treat their lives like they, they don't matter. They're human beings just as much as, as you are, even if they choose to share part of their, their life with the public through the work that they do. So apparently, according to uh, page six in the New York Post, news of Reese Witherspoon and Jim Toth's split may have taken Hollywood watchers by surprise, but page six hears that it was not a shock to anybody, any insiders in Hollywood. Sources say... The impending ending has been a badly kept secret in the industry for months. And word around the punch bowl at uh, agency holiday parties last year was that an announcement was coming at any minute. And it seems the pair who married in 2011 has finally pulled the trigger. And uh, they, she put out a statement on Instagram saying, we have uh, some personal news to share. It was with a great deal of care and consideration that we have made the difficult decision to divorce. And then, you know, it says they've spent many wonderful years together and are moving forward with deep love, kindness, mutual respect, and that kind of thing. And uh, they have a 10-year-old son together, and Reese Witherspoon is 47, looks great for 47. She looks great for any age, but especially for 47. She wrote that uh, her their biggest priority is their 10-year-old son, Tennessee, and their entire family as we navigate this next chapter. She has um, she had previously been married to Ryan Philippi, and the, she has two adult sons with uh, with her ex husband Ryan Philippi. Now, what was interesting to me about this, though, is do you remember when she and her husband got pulled over for drunk driving? Do you remember that? I think it was the husband that was the suspected drunk driver driver and Reese Witherspoon did what you are never supposed to do they were both arrested but I think it was the husband that was driving she pulled the do you know who I am card yeah the husband was driving he was driving erratically and his blood alcohol level was reported to be Point one three nine. Now, point one three nine. It's 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 well above the legal limit, but it's not plastered. I mean, if if I walked in and did the show with point one three nine, you would you wouldn't know the difference. 
Honestly, you you might think it's a slight improvement over what you hear normally. Point one three nine is that's probably what I'm walking around with for most of the day, but um, it's still obviously it's not safe to drive when you're over point oh eight, certainly higher than point one zero, and that, that's what they were doing. So they get pulled over by the cops, and this is the only reason I'm mentioning this. They get pulled over by the cops, and here's a bit of the video that the police vehicle picked up. This is 10 years ago. Reese Witherspoon and her husband being arrested by the police for DUI. Ma'am, what did I just tell you to do? He's under arrest. If you don't get back I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm allowed to stand on American ground and ask any question I want to ask. Go ahead. Come on. You better not arrest me. Yes, ma'am. Are you kidding me? No, I told you. I'm an American citizen. Uh, I told you to get in that car and stay in there, didn't I? This is beyond. I this is beyond. This is beyond. I promise you. This is harassment. You're not harassing me as an American I citizen. I have done nothing against the law. Yes, you have. You didn't obey my... my. I have to obey your orders? Yes, you did. Reese. No, sir. I did not. Absolutely nothing. Reese. I'm now being arrested and handcuffed? Yep. Do you know my name, sir? Don't need to know. You don't need to know my name? Not quite yet. I'll get oh, that really? information. Okay. You're about to find out who I am. That's fine. I'm not real worried about you, ma'am. I done told you how things work. You want to get out and get up in my investigation? That's okay. Yes, sir, I do. Well, guess what? We have a law for that. It's called obstruction. I'm obstructing your justice. Yep. Really? Yep. I'm being anti-American. So the you hear the husband apologizing to the cop. The husband who's already under arrest apologizing to the cop. And saying, well, I'm sorry, we had, had nothing to do with that. But you watch that video and you listen to that video, which is clearly, as Reese made clear, just beyond. beyond. And you wonder, one, were the, were the fissures in their relationship present early? Because I would think. This is beyond. I would think two things would happen. Right. This is what I would hope would happen if I was ever in that situation. I would hope that if my wife. First of all, I can't see my wife talking to a police officer that way. Her brother's a police officer, and uh, she is very respectful of police in every interaction that she has. But uh, I, I would, I would say, Rachel, let the guy do his job. Let the officer do his job. He'll arrest me. Come bail me out. We'll get a lawyer. We'll take care of it. No need to make a big deal about this. Go home. We'll deal with this later. And I would think she would listen to me now. Jim Toth didn't do that, as, at least as we heard uh, on the video. This is beyond. But the other thing uh, that's interesting here is uh, you would think, like, if I what if that was my wife that behaved that way, I wouldn't essentially be taking the side of a stranger that's arresting both of us over my wife. You kind of have to side with your wife in front of a stranger, which the cop was at that point. Even if your wife's wrong, because you're going to have to deal with the cop one more time at, at most. You got to deal with your wife, presumably, for the rest of your life. So you always got to take her side, unfortunately, in some cases. 
So you hear that the Jim Jim Toth apologized to the police officer, and you wonder this is beyond. maybe maybe there were some signs early on with that. But the reason I mentioned that is that must have been, in all sincerity, a, a very traumatic experience for both of them. It's very unpleasant this is beyond. to be arrested and to to be arrested with your wife, I have to think, for something as serious as drinking and driving, I have to think that's a real nightmare. And I know when a family or a couple goes through a tough time, there's two things that can happen. Either that, I wouldn't call this a trauma because it's not. I mean, someone gets gets leukemia, that's a trauma. Uh, someone is abused in a long-term relationship, that's a trauma. So, uh, so you suffer with the loss of a child, God forbid. That's a trauma. This is not a trauma. This is a mild inconvenience, but it's got to be a very difficult thing for a couple. This is beyond. Beyond. So I do wonder, sometimes when you go through something like that, it can bring a couple closer together, and sometimes it can be drive a wedge into a relationship. And I wonder what effect, if any, that drinking, that uh, drunk driving arrest, which was so public, had for their relationship. I mean, maybe none. I'm just spitballing here, but I, I thought it was. I thought it was interesting. That's the first thing I thought of. And divorcing someone that you get arrested with. This is something that I am totally unfamiliar with. As many times as my parents have been divorced, um. I don't think they've ever been arrested with one of their spouses. I'm relatively certain they haven't. This is beyond. But it's funny. Sometimes a celebrity scandal can really hurt your career. And people were wondering, would this DUI arrest hurt her career? And it turns out not even a little bit. She was still America's sweetheart after that. And then she came out with that film, uh, Wild, which was great, by the way. She got, I don't think she got nominated, but I think she might have been nominated. But the movie was nominated. The movie, Wild, was great. And it didn't hurt her at all in terms of her reputation. It was only, you know, in some ways, this might have, uh, I hate to say, I hate to say good publicity because it's not. But I do. They there is an expression. Eric Adams told me one time: the only bad press is the obituary page. I do wonder if maybe the publicity from that arrest, that media sensation, it helped her kind of shed her image as a super controlled goody goody. Because remember, before that, what was she known for? She was known for Tracy Flick. She was known for. Uh, Spider-Man's, uh, she was known for, was she in Spider-Man? No, she wasn't in Spider-Man. This is the other, another blonde woman. And she was known for Legally Blonde, the Legally Blonde movies. All kind of prissy, uh, all kind of very stuck up, uh, all kind of a know-it-all, all very holier than thou. Not the case with, well, Legally Blonde wasn't a know-it-all, but everything else. Not the case with this video, with this uh, with this DUI video. This is beyond. And you wonder, did that play a role in her, maybe her being considered more acceptable to 
wider audiences to do a film like Wild. I think it's interesting. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Okay, I don't understand how you're making the connection between their divorce and this incident, which happened in 2013, which was 11 years ago. Now, I, the only movie I've actually seen her in is Election, which I thought was a great movie. Me I don't too. know if you mentioned that one. Yeah, I did. And, but, you know, that incident totally changed my perception of her at the time. And that was one of the reasons, besides the fact I lost my vision, that that was the last movie I've ever seen of hers. Because when you have someone who has that kind of image that she had, and you see them at what I would consider a low moment because she was clearly intoxicated when she was making those statements. Right. It, it, it can affect your ability to get certain roles, and I'm pretty sure that's what happened to her. But I, I don't really understand how you're making this connection to the divorce, to be honest. Well, well, I'm asking the first question. Were the fissures of their relationship visible that early? That was about two years into their marriage. When you see, when you see Jim Toth, kind of siding with the cop over over his wife, basically, who was, you know, a little out of line. And two, I'm wondering, so I would think sometimes, even if it's 10 or 11 years later, when you go through what is a very, very trying experience for a couple together, sometimes that can... Uh, bind you closer together and keep you together. And sometimes it can drive you further apart. Maybe there's no connection. Uh, I just, um, right. I, it, it, maybe you're right. And, and look, chances are you are, but, uh, cause look, they stayed married another decade after that. But, um, I, I, I don't know. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. It was the first thing I thought well, of and I thought it was worth exploring. Well, I'll say this, Frank, if I could, if I, if my partner, tried to throw me under the bus the way that he did, it wouldn't take 11 years for me to decide to kick them to the curb. And that, that's all I'll say. But, that. but a lot me. of people, David, are going to say yeah. that, look, she was out of line. She shouldn't be talking back to the cop and getting herself arrested. She should have followed the police officer's instruction. Yeah, but she was, she was clearly intoxicated. Right. I mean, that's what this all comes down to. Right. And, and I didn't want to say this, but I, I'll say it because it, it, this is what I was – because I checked on, on checked up on this on the internet when you mentioned it. There have been allegations of the both of them having a drinking problem going back to this incident. So that may be the actual oh, thing that's behind all of this. Yeah, no, look it up. They, there's been allegations of her being an alcoholic and also him. So maybe it's better that they're getting a divorce. Okay. Well, I, I, David, thank you, David. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't know that. I hadn't heard that. You know, uh, one of my favorite musical, as I think many of you know, is seventeen seventy six. And the thing about that musical, I, I haven't seen the new all female, all trans, all minority version that's on Broadway now. But the thing about that movie, I'll stick with the movie and the original theatrical productions and the revival that was about uh, twenty two years ago. 23 years, whenever, I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s. The thing about that musical is it's mostly historically accurate. It's not entirely historically accurate because they combine some characters and do things. But I'd say it's 80% accurate, maybe more, which for a musical is pretty good. You remember who the congressional, uh, the the Congress, the delegate to the Second Continental Congress was from New Jersey? You remember who that was? In the movie... And in real life, 
the the delegate to the Declaration of Independence, Second Continental Congress, was the Reverend John Witherspoon. And is that a coincidence that he has the same name as Reese? It is not. Reese Witherspoon is a descendant of the Reverend John Witherspoon who signed the Declaration of Independence. And now you know the rest of the story. 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. 800-848-9222. Fun, laughs, and thought provocation straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. the side of midnight so um well i'll save that story for tomorrow uh we'll give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds on any subject you like 800-848-9222 time for the other side of midnight this is 15 seconds of fame peter peter raji indeed inflation benefits businesses especially supermarkets, while enriching the filthy rich at the expense of the very poor. Ralph. Okay, two questions I want to ask you. Is WABC still on TikTok, and what is the ad in a $1,000 minute uh, game show? What are the... I, I don't know either. Mike. Morning, Frank. As humans continue to manipulate and develop AIs, humanity will continue to lose its abilities. This is already evident, and I'm fearful it will end badly. Rick. Yeah, Frank, you can uh, find the Forbin Project on movieland.tv. You might need a Roku device or app. Elizabeth. Hello. uh, My father was a prominent attorney, and we were once on Woodward Avenue in Michigan, and the policeman stopped him for speeding, and he said, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Stanley, she's a moron. She's a moron. Robert, hey, it's WABC Wolf in the Ship Clothing. First winner, then Cuomo. Who's next? Hillary Clinton. Troy, hey, MC stocks going through the roof today. MC stocks going through the roof before selection. So, close it up. We can smash the MC stock where you can. 
Thank you. I want to, whether it's stock tips or electoral tips, uh, I do not vouch for the credibility of any of the callers in 15 seconds of fame. Hey, you want to stay in touch with me, uh, find me on Twitter at Frank Morano, Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. I'll be back tomorrow. Got some good stuff planned for tomorrow. Until then, Frank Morano, good day. Good day.